Meanwhile, following the JLI into Green Lantern Corps, Booster Gold, and Power of the Atom. Hello, and welcome to the Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. This is another of our Meanwhile episodes, and now in these Meanwhile installments, we take a break from the usual numbered issues to provide a chance to look at the JLI outside of the monthly series. My name is The Irredeemable Shag, and I'm your host, but guess what? I have brought along some friends. I've got three different co-hosts today to help me tackle some JLI-related four-color funny books. Today, we'll be looking at some of the JLI appearances in both Booster Gold and Power of the Atom, as well as Guy Gardner's appearances in the Green Lantern core series leading up to his joining the Justice League. In this episode, each series will have a different co-host. For now, we're here in Los Angeles at the Green Lantern Corps Citadel headquarters, or as I like to call it, Barbie Arezia's Dreamhouse. Along with me is my co-host for this segment, a returning guest to the JLI podcast. And if you look up curmudgeon in the dictionary, you'll find a picture of this guy. And when I decided to cover Green Lantern in his full obnoxious glory, this co-host immediately sprang to mind as the most Guy Gardner-like person I know. Folks, please help me welcome back to the show, Mr. Keechee Baker. Welcome back, Keith. Thanks for being here. How you doing, man? Hey, Shag. What's crack a lacking? <laughs> <laughs> lots and lots of stuff, man. I am so excited to talk about Guy Gardner. And uh, you, sir, have forced me to gain a little bit of appreciation for his pre-JLI days. Well, yeah. I mean, Guy was never one of my favorites to start off with, but uh, he kind of grows on you. I don't know if that's like a fungus or if it's a love that he instills in you. <laughs> I think um, in your case, it was you just didn't like looking in the mirror. Yeah. Well, but then again, me, me and you kind of hit it off to start off with. Uh, unlike Guy, it took a little while for me to start liking him. So. And actually, our relationship started off with me stalking you. For those who don't know, Keith used to run a Firestorm website way back in the, the pre, I don't gosh, I don't know, like ghost days of the internet. And <laughs> I stalked his website and I said, hey man, I want to talk to you. So I actually got Keith to talk on the phone. Like you very nervously gave me your phone number and all this stuff. And that's how we actually got to know each other. Crazy. Yeah, well, actually, Shag's lying to you. We actually met on Tinder, but you know, that's... <laughs> I don't think Tinder existed 23 <laughs> years ago, which is, I believe, the first time we spoke, sir. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's that is, true. Yeah. That, that is horrifying to think how long I've known you. Ugh. Well, you know, it must say something that we've actually stayed friends this long. I mean, uh, we can't get on each other's nerves too bad if, if we're still talking to each other after all this time. Or we both just like to punish ourselves. Could be one of the other. It could be. It could be a <laughs> self-flagellation. So, you know. <laughs> just trying to get you to say that word. Perfect. Mission accomplished. Hey, curmudgeon and self-flagellation will eventually we'll come up with some other words that may mean other things <laughs> well before keith and i start talking about the entire past 23 years of our friendship we need to get rolling into this folks because we need to thank our sponsors this episode of the jli podcast is sponsored in part by instocktrades.com instocktrades is your best online source for trades hardcovers and other collected editions all for up to 42 percent off with free shipping on orders of 50 dollars or more now each episode will select a collected edition to briefly discuss from the instocktrades library usually it's tied into this issue of JLI, or at least the topic, in some way, shape, or form. Now, as I said, this episode, we're going to be talking about Guy Gardner and Booster Gold 
and Power of Atom. So I picked a Booster Gold trade, specifically Booster Gold Future Lost Hardcover. Now this collects, you know, the, the original run of Booster Gold, the Dan Jurgen series. This one specifically collects the second half of that, so you get Booster Gold issues 13 through 25, which by the way, we'll talk about two of those issues in a little while. Includes pages from Millennium, I'm sorry for that, Action Comics, and Secret Origins. All hold, it's a 400-page tome hardcover. Normally retails for $39.99, but you can get it for 42% off, so it's only $23.19, and that is a whole lot of Booster Gold chocolatey goodness right there for a reasonable price. So check that out, Booster Gold Future Lost Hardcover. Now, Keith, normally I rely on the guests to bring a pick to the show. I have absolutely no faith that you've done your job, but I'm going to put it out there anyway, and hopefully I won't have to edit this out later. Did you bother to bring something? Ha ha, oh ye of little faith. Of course I brought something, man. <laughs> what you got? What I have is the Green Lantern Rebirth trade. Essentially what this trade does is it brings back the best and one and only Green Lantern Hal Jordan, but in a miniseries by Jeff Johns, Ethan Van Skyver, and Prentice Rollins. Let's see, I'll go over this as the page count is 160 pages. It's full color and soft cover. It was $14.99 on in-stock trades. You'll get it for $8.69, also a savings of 42%. But the reason I picked this uh, is not just for Hal Jordan coming back, which is awesome and everybody can agree on that because everybody agrees on their favorite Green Lantern, I know. Oh my gosh. But, uh, <laughs> so many wrong statements in there, but okay. <laughs> but, but it also goes into Guy also. It makes him a Green Lantern again. Again. And, and so what I like about this is it, it makes him more well-rounded character. Um, I know that uh, several people have tried to do this over the years. Bo Smith and Chuck, Chuck Dixon and some of those people have tried to um, make Guy more relatable and not just be the complete and utter butthole that he, that he was to start off with in the stuff that we're going to cover. But yeah, this is where it starts and it eventually goes in, into the stuff that uh, Robert Vendetti wrote a little bit later, just a few years ago, where Guy eventually becomes a member of the Honor Guard of the of the Green Lantern Corps. So yeah, it, it actually, if you want to see something where a guy is actually becoming a character that you can root for than against, this is kind of where it starts for me. There's there's a lot to love about Green Lantern Rebirth. There's a lot that, if you're not a Hal fan, doesn't sit well with you, or if you're especially if you're a Kyle fan. But the, what, what I got to mention, though, to me, it's the, the Guy Gardner thing is kind of hysterical in it because, you know, leading up to that, he was Guy Gardner Warrior, right? The Vondarian thing. And the scenes in there where he becomes a Green Lantern again, it, it almost reminds me of like, you know, when you, if you ever had a dog who goes out in the rain and then comes inside and just shakes everything and all the water goes flying off. It's, <laughs> it's like there's a scene where a guy just does that or he just shakes and all the Vundarian stuff flies off of him. He's Green Lantern again. I mean, it's basically what it just felt like. It's like, let's just move past this. But, exactly. And that, and that, and that's what yeah, guy was always meant to, to be a Green Lantern. I mean, he did look good with a yellow ring for a while and stuff like that, but he, he is a Green Lantern and we'll kind of go into that as we, as we talk. Uh, why he he is deserving of the ring. So. Someday, I gotta do a podcast, uh, an episode, not a series, but an episode about celebrating Guy Gardner as the Vendarian warrior. I mean, there's a lot that's not great with it because of the reasons that they got there, but what they did with it was awesome. So, anyway, uh, I, I will, I'll take us down a rabbit hole of Bo Smith, and I shouldn't do that. So, <laughs> so check both of those out on InStock Trades, folks, and while you're there, tell them the Firewater Podcast Network sent you. Now, I also need to thank you folks at home for your Patreon support, because running the Firewater Podcast Network with so many shows requires a lot of online hosting, other 
other services, a lot of stuff that goes into keeping the network running. And you guys stepped up to the plate when we needed help, and it's sincerely been appreciated. Uh, if it weren't for you guys, the network wouldn't be on the air. So, folks, if you're enjoying the JLI podcast and you wish to help support the show, please visit patreon.com slash fwpodcast and consider supporting the Firewater Podcast Network while you're there. We sincerely appreciate everyone's support, and at certain tiers, you get recognized on your show of choice. For example, our thanks to Bill Beer, Chris Lewis, Danny Dowell, David Ace Gutierrez, Devin Clancy, George William, Gord Tolton, John Ross Haynes, Mark Baker Wright, Martin Gray, Matt Ev, Maxwell Traver, Mike Zemkowski, Roger Preeb, Rudy Castillo, Sean Ross, and Tim Price. Again, folks, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. Now, Guy Gardner, love him or hate him, you probably have strong feelings about him one way or another. Almost everyone does. So we want to hear from you folks. Go out to our website, which is, again, firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. Leave your comments on the show post there for this episode. We want to hear about Guy. Well, let's extend that. I want to hear about Booster Gold. I also want to hear about Power of the Atom. You go on the social medias. Use our hashtag, PoundFWPodcast. Tag us on Twitter at JLI Podcast. And, and the whole point is, it's all about building a community of online JLI fans around this show. So we want you to be part of the discussion. Speaking of people being part of the discussion, unfortunately, this is where we have to talk to Keith. Nobody's favorite thing to do. Now, if you go back to Justice League International episode number 24, Keith was the guest that episode. Keith told us his history about the JLI there. I'm going to ask Keith a different question this time. So, Keith, what is your origin story with Guy Gardner? How did you discover this character, and what made you fall in love or hate him? I first actually met Guy when he woke up in the coma ward right before crisis, I believe. That was in 190, uh, in 1985. So, I was 30 years old, I think. So I didn't know Guy back when he last appeared before this, which was in 123, and that was in 1980, because I don't think the Green Lantern book was yet in my my personal holy trinity of books that I was making sure to collect around the time of Crisis. Mm-hmm. Around that time, it was at the books I always got were Justice League, Flash, and Green Lantern. That, I mean, I, I did get other books, but those were the main three that I never missed an issue of by the time 85 rolled around. Back in 80 when I was eight years old, I know that I was I was doing Flash and Justice League, and I always made sure to get like a Superman book, and usually anything that had the most characters on the cover. But anyway, when Guy woke up in the coma ward, you know, it kind of shocked me because I always thought that John Stewart was uh, Hal's only backup. So what this did was, you know, it's 1985. I'm 13, so I, I'm diving in the back issue bins of Green Lantern to see how this guy ended up in a coma. Is this the first time we've ever seen him? Because mm. Mm. kind of came out of left field to me that that Hal used to have another backup. But I really never liked Guy, mainly because he was tied into Crisis. He was briefly tied into Crisis. John Stewart did did most of the stuff in Crisis as far as Green Lanterns go. You know, because uh, Crisis, I thought, was just a story and everything was going to go back the way it was before, like every other comic I'd read up until that point. It did I eventually. Just, it just took like 40 years, but okay. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it happened <laughs> It happened like last week, right? So, <laughs> like six times, actually. It's happened six times since we started this podcast. <laughs> yeah, so, so, you know, in, anyway, um, but I did like his his costume. It was the first u- unique costume that I'd ever seen. But after Crisis, there were too many Green Lanterns on Earth uh, taking screen time away from Hal, you know, because Hal is the Green Lantern of Earth. So who are, these, who, are these, who are these other guys who showed up? But later, I liked the way he played off, off of the characters in JLI. I, I still 
wasn't fully bought into JLI at the time. So, you know, because uh, it just wasn't the Justice League to me. I mean, it was funny. I didn't get a lot of the humor because, you know, I was a preteen teen at the time. I, I got it later when I got older and I went back and read Justice League and realized how funny it was. But to me, it was just a placeholder until the satellite came back, you know, or whatever. <laughs> so, <laughs> but then uh, Jeff Johns, as I mentioned in the in-stock trades thing, Jeff Johns and Robert Vendetti fleshed out Guy in Rebirth and the pl- post-Flushpoint stuff and uh, made him into a believable character and vaulted him up to being my third favorite Green Lantern. So, so who comes after Hal? Oh, John. John oh, okay. Gotcha. I, right. I, I, I've always liked John. I like him better the way he was originally portrayed before he was a Marine, when he was an architect who fought for racial justice and that type stuff. Mm-hmm. When they made him more militant because of the cartoon, uh, at first I thought it took a little something away from uh, from him, but they kind of merged those. Uh, and I give Vendetti a lot of credit for that. They merged those two personalities for John and made him into a, a third John character. So mm. my eyes. So, so I'll, I'll say, I'll just answer real quickly on my own. My, my favorite is, is Kyle. Uh, yeah. That was when I, I know you don't like it. That's fine. But that's when I fell in love with Green Lantern. My next is Guy and then John and then probably, I don't know, the Talking Rock uh, and things <laughs> like that. And then Hal's like, you know, he's, he's not even like a, a, a number I can count. He's like number pie. He's so low on the list. Oh, so. man. No, no Alan Scott? Wow. Wow. Well, you I really, you Alan, really okay. are dissing oh, on the JSA. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Oh, gosh. Man, yeah, somebody okay. that has a JSA podcast <laughs> coming up. Okay. You, you, you really on. hate the JSA. <laughs> hold on, hold on. Uh, <laughs> Alan would definitely be either number two or three, depending on the week. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, I was thinking of the core. I was thinking of the core. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I know, I know. It, it's easy to forget the old people and leave them out in the cold. That's what happens to you all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Chip's even right. Chip and Arisi are ranked even higher than Hal. So anyway. I'll put Salak up there. Oh, my gosh. Salak and Kilowog. So, yeah. (laughs) All right. Now we're going to get into it, folks. We're going to do a brief rundown of all of Guy Gardner's key appearances before he joined the Justice League. Now, we're not going all the way back to his first appearance. I mean, that was Green Lantern 59 from 1968, which is crazy how long this character's been around. Now, we're going to jump forward to when little Keith G. Baker went to the store and bought that issue of Guy waking up in a coma. And what we're going to do is we're just going to touch on these issues super fast. And we're just going to mention them and give you the key points of why it was important to Guy Gardner. And then eventually at the end, we're going to select one issue to talk about more in depth. So here we go. Starting off with Green Lantern number 190. In it, Guy Gardner awakens from his coma that he's been in for a few years. He's been catatonic for about three years and, and uh, suffered brain damage from his time in the antimatter universe of Quard. Actually, Shag, uh, his brain damage occurred from months of mind raping by five Phantom Zone villains, including General Zod. Um, he was then kidnapped to Quard and used as a mind control pawn by Sinestro against Hal. All this was retconned later to make all of it being Sinestro, but that occurs post-crisis. So this is actually another way that Crisis really starts screwing with storylines before Crisis ever happens and after. <laughs> but yeah, essentially his brain damage occurred in his second comic appearance, but his first actual adventure as a Green Lantern. Yeah, that Phantom Zone thing has definitely been forgotten in time. I didn't even know that until you mentioned it to me. Well, yeah, they kind of had to get rid of it because they de-aged Superman and with the Man of Steel and, and all that kind of jazz. So, yeah. So the Phantom Zone villains 
didn't exist in a couple of issues. All right. Well, we're going to keep running through these here. So then we get to Green Lantern number 193. In 193, the Guardians since the beginning of Crisis. They don't really call it that. But at this point, at the end of the issue, Guy walks out of the hospital and to the surprise of the staff. And he, he walks out of the hospital stating that he has a uh, long overdue appointment with a ring. He seems kind of angry at the time, which is kind of different than the happy-go-lucky guy that we know from the past issues of Green Lantern. So interestingly, enough crisis was already on by this point issue number seven so it's interesting that like it's just now catching up with the green lantern series it's it's almost like the other editors weren't privy to what was going to happen in crisis until about halfway through and then suddenly everyone's like well i guess we better do something with this (laughs) that may be the case or heck it could be the case where the staff of green lantern you know the the writer artist editors were like hey you know it seems that the green lanterns and the guardians are going to have a big part in this or it could be that that they had already planned on something happen, happening to the Guardians to mainly keep them out of crisis because by this point, the Guardians are so powerful that you know they would kind of screw up a storyline there. Yeah, it could be that. It could also be, too, that they were told you can't do anything and with Green Lantern specifically until the Corona history was revealed. That was tied to the Anti-Monitor. Sorry, spoilers. Uh, and maybe they said, all right, once the Corona story is released, then you can kind of acknowledge this crisis stuff because it ties in directly with Green Lanterns. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it could be a number of things, but uh, in fact, next time we see... Uh, Joe Staten or something. Maybe we can ask him. (laughs) All right, folks. Then we jump forward to Green Lantern number 194 and 195. Now, these are crisis tie-ins. Hal Jordan, no longer the Green Lantern of Earth. He's just a regular human citizen, and he goes to pay a visit to the grave of Avansur. And there he finds Guy Gardner attempting to dig up Avansur's body, seeking his power ring and his battery. Yeah, that's that's the funny thing, because uh, anybody who's been reading Green Lantern up to this point know that Avan's body is no longer at this gravesite. It was actually taken back to Oa and be enshrined there. So. Whoops! Continuity error. <laughs> yeah. Well, in, in this moment when Hal and Guy face off, Guy seems really dazed and very single-minded. And then suddenly, a Guardian of the Universe appears and offers Guy Gardner membership in the Green Lantern Corps. And they transport him to Oa. Yeah, at this point, the uh, the Guardians say that they fanned the spark of life remaining in him and that they would have brought him f- uh, further, but they had to act quick quickly because of the crisis that was coming. Uh, they also tell how that he's no longer part of the Guardians' plans because he quit the Green Lantern Corps. But I think this is going to be important coming up, how the Guardians quote, fixed uh, Guy and brought him up to speed. So Yeah, it's definitely relevant. So uh, At this point in the issues we discover, there's actually two factions of the Guardians of the Universe. One faction is a pacifist, while the other faction wants to take action and stop the Anti-Monitor. Now, this proactive faction are the ones who brought Guy out of his coma. And at first, Guy's mind is really hazy, and he has trouble thinking clearly. However, upon arriving on Oa, Guy's mind clears and he can think straight. The guy is still suffering the effects of brain damage. And what they say in a later issue is that the damage has removed any doubts he might have about achieving his objectives. So I think what's important here, and I'm, I'm going to do some math for you. I, kn- I know, Shag, I know you don't like numbers or math or even the word math. You probably can't even spell it. But Hold, hold on. Let me take my shoes off so I can help count. Yeah. So so anyway, so basically the Guardians helped speed along Guy's recovery from his brain injury. It only took the Guardians a few. This is important. It only took the Guardians a few days to heal Guy, but they let him sit in a coma because he was just a standby and was not worth their time. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, so think about this from Guy's point of view at this point. So, he was never officially enrolled as a Green Lantern, but now he is. And uh, so, here's where the math comes in. Uh, the Anti-Monitor imprisoned 15 of the 36 Guardians. How do we know this? Because Hal actually knows how many Guardians there are. I think this is the first time we ever find out how many Guardians there are. So, there are 36 Guardians. Anti-Monitor 
monitor imprisoned 15 of them. It actually turns out that the passively waiting ones are the are another 15. So that makes 30. The remaining six, though, have decided to, to form a new core and actually do something about this crisis in the anti-monitor. Those six are the ones who recruit Guy as their champion. So they're going to take an active role in things from now on rather than waiting for things to happen like the Guardians have in the past. I don't have 36 toes. I couldn't follow the math. So uh, anyway. Okay. Well, well, basically, uh, all you need to keep in mind is 15 are imprisoned, 15 are sitting around with their thumb up their ass, and six <laughs> actually decide to do something. That sounds fair. Okay. I can keep up with that. <laughs> all right. Then we jump forward to Crisis on Infinite Earths number nine, the most relevant, important comic ever published and something that Keith G. Baker adores. <sighs> this in Crisis, I mean, the, the pictures are beautiful. The story of Crisis is great. It's a great Elseworld story in my mind. Anyway, um, this picks up right after 195, where you have six of the 21 Guardians standing around with Guy, telling him what's going on. But the key to take out of this is that the Anti-Monitor picks this point to attack Oa, and he kills five of those six, and there's just one Guardian left. And he decides to go ahead with the plan and make Guy their champion and have Guy take an active role in the crisis and helping to save the multiverse. So does this is this single Guardian uh, around later? Like, does he has an? This isn't like Ganthet or something, is it? I don't know about this later. I know he he's the one who later in 196 or 197 that's coming up. He's the one in that panel that is talking to um, to Hal. And I also know that he is the one whose idea it was for the Green Lantern Corps in the first place uh, hmm. post uh, Manhunter because they say that in these issues too. Okay, interesting. So it may be Ganthet, and and in my head it is, but I I don't know for sure. All right, then we go back to Green Lantern over in issue one ninety six and one ninety eight. Also, crisis tie-ins. Yeah, at this point we find out the guy is actually from Monument Street in Baltimore or Balmer, uh, as people from there say. But uh, before he was just known to be from an eastern city. The main thing to know this guy centric about this is that Monument Street is a rough neighborhood. In fact, it's consistently even today known as the number one most dangerous neighborhood in Baltimore. Oh, jeez. Yeah, so we also find out that John is Guy's backup and Guy is Hal's backup. The main reason for this is because John was only 12 years old when Hal and Guy were both both chosen by Abensur. Hal getting the nod because he was actually closer to the crash site. <laughs> Alright. In these issues, Guy Gardner leads a team of supervillains to attack the moon of the antimatter universe planet of Quard. Now, Guy believes an attack on the birthplace of the antimatter will destroy him because that's what the Guardians told him. And Hal is then given a ring by Guy's rebel guardian and becomes a Green Lantern again, but Hal is told that Guy is in charge. And at this point, as they leave, uh, Sinestro shows up and uh, somehow he convinces John and, and Kamatui, uh, John's girlfriend at this time, also a Green Lantern, of the sector that used to be under the purview of Sinestro. Sinestro shows up and t tells John and Katma that Guy's plan is actually wrong, that his plan is going to actually destroy the multiverse, so they need to stop him. So, this thing is really a mess. It's a, it's yeah. a super <laughs> convoluted plot, and the big twist is, it's sort of similar to the, like the I know, that you know, that he knows, that I know, that you know. I mean, it's that kind of story. It goes back and forth to who's right and who's not. Ultimately, it turns out that Guy's plan will actually doom the universe. And at different points in the universe-spanning story, Guy battles John Stewart. Yeah, and during that battle, which is, is, is real weird to read these days, but John tells 
kills Guy, that Guy doesn't count because he was picked by the minority of Guardians. Seems kind of weird coming from John on this point. But anyway, that kind of stuck out to me. And then right after that, Guy attempts to kill Hal Jordan. Not just beat him. He tries to kill him. Uh, Ultimately, John and Hal stop Guy, thus saving the universe. And Hal is reinstated officially as part of the Green Lantern Corps. Yes, uh, that was Timor Ray's dying wish was for uh, for, uh, Hal to get his ring back. And it turns out he does get actually his ring back, which was on John's finger. Uh, They give John a new ring, of course, but Hal gets his original ring back. So at this at this point, Guy's claim of being the last true Green Lantern is technically correct because he was he was the only one out of all these people who was given a ring by the last true Guardian because that is the only active Guardian at the at the time that he was given his ring. You have fifteen there, as we said, fifteen that are incapacitated and fifteen with their thumbs up their ass. Some are dead, and you have this one who's actually only doing something. So he is the last true Guardian and gave. It the guy. So Guy's claim of that, it may be a little bit um, wrongheaded, but he has some some valid claims there. Which is interesting, because then years later, he goes on to claim, you know, he's the one true Green Lantern. And I always just assumed that was because that was his ego talking. But there's there's some, uh, at least, you know, whether you agree with him or not, he's got some reasons for saying it, at least. Well, well yeah, I would say I would say it's probably 90% ego and 10% there's a kernel of truth wrapped up in all that ego. Yeah. But, <laughs> but one of the biggest things in, the, in these issues is there's one panel and this is where that uh, last guardian is talking to Hal and he tells Hal look we're giving you your ring back but Guy is in charge and I'll just read it here um Hal says master, which always had a problem with them calling the Guardians masters. That's just weird. But anyway, um, he says master. Guy Gardner has been damaged somehow by his years in the coma. And the Guardian says absolutely, but he's damaged in a manner which removes any doubts he might have about achieving his objectives. And then he says, who who else would you choose to lead an assault on the moon of Quark? But I think that's key, uh, is, is he was damaged in a certain way that basically removes any doubts he has about his mission at hand. I think it I think it explains a lot of Guy's personality from this point forward. He's starting with the building block of he has no doubts about anything that he's doing. And then from there, you have to realize he is almost like an infant as far as all the rest of his, his emotions and feelings and all the rest of his personality because essentially all the rest of that personality was wiped out in the way that the Guardians built him back or the, or the, the mind raping that he had at the hands of Sinestro and, and the Phantom Zone villains. I, I think you're onto something here. This, what the Guardian revealed here, again, about his absolute confidence in his actions, and then something that we'll get to in just a little bit, where Carrie R- Limbo says something. Actually, I think those two things define Guy and explain all of his actions, actually, in Justice League International, which is interesting. But yeah, I think Justice League International uh, actually helps him with that growth. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's keep going. So we get to Green Lantern number 200. So big anniversary issue. Guy travels to Zamoran, and because he's on the run from the Green Lantern Corps at this point, and he forges an alliance with Star Sapphire and Hector Hammond. They call themselves the Triumvirate of Terror. Um, <laughs> now, they ambush Hal Jordan on a deserted moon, but Hal overpowers them and arrests them and takes them to Oa. Yeah, it's a real short fight, folks. Uh, about the same time, there's an attack on Oa by the weaponers of Quard and Sinestro, and they're pretty easily defeated, but that plot doesn't really have anything to do with guys, so I don't care. Hey, hold on. We have the Guardian counter going now, so let's keep in mind... <laughs> <laughs> Let's keep in mind that as of right now, 22 of the 36 Guardians remain after Crisis. It, actually, in the in the issue previous to, that we didn't talk about, 199, we found out that 14 of the Guardians and also 912 of the Green Lanterns died.
riding crisis. So 36 minus 14 uh, shag is 22. I'm envisioning one of those news shows where they have like the counters that pop up on the screen that no one really cares about, but like the newscaster just wants to keep running on numbers. So that's that's kind of what's happening here. You, so, mean, like, you mean like a sports program? <laughs> oh, is that what they call those things? So later, the Guardians of the Universe announced they plan to leave for another plane of existence, basically just to go get it on with the Xamarons. Yeah, this is echoes of a millennium before it happened, folks. The Green Lantern Corps is being left to govern themselves, along with the guidance of a former Green Lantern known as the Old Timer from Hal's Hard Traveling Hero Days. Yeah, Appa Ali Apsa. Yeah, nope, never going to say that. So uh, <laughs> Guy Gardner is remanded into the custody of the Old Timer on the planet Moltis. Guy's penance is to help rebuild the planet of Moltis and learn the way of the Green Lantern Corps. I think this is another important point, which is going to come up in a minute. But in addition to him being with Old Timer or Appa, he, he's also under the watchful eyes of two guards. They are honor guards, but it's, it's Charisma and Apro. Apros. I don't I don't know if you pronounce it in the French way or what, but he's like a, basically a, a sentient pumpkin. Um, but uh, <laughs> but uh, Apros actually has the ability to mentally control others. So these are these are the two people that are are sent with Guy and Appa to Maltus, um, and they're basically there to keep an eye on Guy. Yeah, in fact, it comes into play in this next issue, issue two hundred five. We jump forward to where on the planet of Maltus, Guy Gardner is fed up with his what I call prison work sentence uh, of helping rebuild the planet. He also feels the old timers not trained him as it was promised. So as Guy plots to escape, the two Green Lantern honor guards figure out his plan and put a stop to Guy's escape attempt. Yeah, and and in this, Apros actually subdues Guy with mind control. So you you figure this guy's egg has already been scrambled for freaking twenty years now, and he's getting scrambled again. I'm pretty sure he doesn't he doesn't like it. Yeah, it, it, it as much as Guy is repugnant, sometimes it's hard to blame him because of the situation he was placed into. Yeah, and and actually speaking of repugnant, I'm going to talk about uh, um, identity crisis. So. What? <laughs> What? <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't put this on, on the note. Sorry about that, Shag. But I just thought about this. Is we is only that, have a limited amount of time, you know. <laughs> I know. I, I, this, this is just real quick. But you you know how much uh, Batman hated the mind wiping. Yes. I think that him and Guy actually have a lot in common here, and and could probably talk about this over over uh, tea at, tea at Wayne Manor. Interesting. So. Okay. All right. I thought you were going to go with how Guy appears in the Green Lantern costume in Identity Crisis before Green Lantern Rebirth happened. So. <laughs> oh yeah. No. No. I, I, I try not to think about identity crisis. Fair enough. All right, so we're going to jump forward to Secret Origins, Volume 2, Issue Number 7. There's not a lot to say about this because it wasn't a contemporary story, but it does delve into Guy's past. It does, and this is actually where we see really the first retcon, maybe? Is is this the first retcon post, post-crisis? post But anyway, basically, Guy Gardner is a physical education teacher and uh, was almost chosen by Abin Sur as the Green Lantern of Earth. He had to wait, however, because of different injuries. He, he's the most unlucky guy ever. Uh, first, he was hit by a bus. Then he ended up in a coma. But anyway, he hated Hal Jordan when he finally got out of it. And I have issues with that part of it. But anyway, but uh, one interesting thing that they say in the Secret Origins issue is that they describe Guy as having one dimension, ego and anger, just this side of madness. So they retconned and removed uh, the fact that Zod and the Phantom Zone villains uh, caused his brain damage. And 
And uh, they show Sinestro briefly, but they kind of allude to the fact that he was just damaged by the explosion of the battery that sent him to Sinestro somehow. So anyway, I, that, that's I, they expand on that le- much later when some other writers go into Guy. But anyway, uh, it skips the whole fact that he was tortured for months and believed dead by all those that cared about him. That's the that's the takeaway here is that it kind of truncates Guy's origin and doesn't put in the stuff that makes him a sympathetic figure. Hmm. Well, he also uh, they do mention the part where he sees Hal and Carrie Limbo, which is Guy's girlfriend, getting it on. That is true. And we could talk for an hour about that and how you're wrong about Hal in that situation. But we're, we're not going to. But yeah, uh, it, it, it is another reason to hate <laughs> Carrie Limbo. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. She's just a plot device that really was a pain. So then we jump forward to Green Lantern Corps number 207, which was a Legends tie-in. Uh, the real brief recap of this is that Guy Gardner arrives on Earth and declares himself the leader of the Green Lanterns. Now, the reason we're doing this briefly is because we're actually going to cover this issue in depth in just a few minutes. Then we jump forward to Green Lantern Corps number 209. Now, over in the Soviet Union, Kilowog has helped the Soviets build their army of the Rocket Red Brigade, which, of course, will you know give us our beloved Dmitri. John Stewart and Captain Matui are also in the Soviet Union, but are betrayed and captured by the Russians. Meanwhile, Guy Gardner mentions that he was just invited to join the new Justice League at the end of the Legends miniseries, which is kind of odd, because right now, at this point, Legends is only on issue number four, and the first new issue of Justice League is still a couple months away from publication, so, uh, spoilers, I guess? Uh, now, Guy approaches Hal Jordan and Aresia about leading the Green Lantern Corps on an attack on Russia, but they decline to join him. Guy makes a crude pass at Aresia, who's now all grown up, uh, which results in Hal decking Guy. Guy's old girlfriend, Carrie Limbo, oh joy, uh, she arrives and pleads for Guy to let go of his rage and hate. This, of course, leads Guy to take matters into his own hands, and he flies to Russia and attacks. That leads right into Green Lantern Corps number 210, where Kilowog fights Guy Gardner to force him out of Russia. Guy gets the upper hand against Kilowog and the Rocket Reds, and is then revealed that the Russians intend to kill Jon Stewart and Cap Matui. Kilowog turns and fights the Rocket Reds, while Guy rescues Jon and Cap Matui. Elsewhere, the other Green Lanterns stop dozens of launched Soviet missiles from reaching the U.S. And thus, the long and short of issue 209 and 210 is that Guy was right. You never trust a commie. <laughs> Interestingly enough, I think my very first issue of Green Lantern Corps I bought was 208, which was the beginning of this story where Kilowog goes to the Soviet Union. So yeah, I, I could I could see how flying that Russian banner on the front of a cover would attract a, attract a young chap. <laughs> it was a gorgeous cover. It was it one is, of Steve's it, best it covers. A, it is a pretty sweet cover. I yeah. like how it looks like chalk. Like yeah, chalk exactly. Drawing. Yeah. And 210's kind of the opposite because it's all about Guy Gardner being like the all-American hero with like a little boy scout there with him. <laughs> <laughs> all right. The last issue, uh, right before just Justice League happens is Green Lantern 211. Now, at the Green Lantern Corps' New Year's Eve party, a disgruntled Guy Gardner unleashes a concoction that gets his fellow Green Lantern Corps members drunk and causes a bad reaction in Salak. Salak unknowingly unleashes monsters created from his ring to attack the Corps. Fed up with Guy, Hal orders Guy off the team forever. Uh, Guy says good riddance, informing the group that he's already been invited to join the Reform Justice League, and he plans to be that team's leader, which of course leads right into Justice League number one. And that is the 10 year of Guy Gardner in the Green Lantern Corps leading right up to the Giffen DiMatteis era. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about issue number 207 in greater depth, and then we're going to talk about Guy and just our general feelings about him and a, a character and the history there. 
So the only thing that I will have to say about 211 is on the one hand, yeah, guy roofied the Green Lantern Corps. Yeah. <laughs> on the on the other hand, though, let's think back about Guy. If he has a plan, nothing is going to stand in his way, the way that his brain is working now. So his plan was to party for New Year's Eve with the Green Lantern Corps. He was actually trying to be sociable. So they were standing in the way of his plan to party with them. So he made it so that they could party with him. Only Keith G. Baker could find a way to make me understand that issue a different way. Hmm, interesting. <laughs> so, and by the way, little Keith G. Baker probably walked away after reading issue 211, realizing that, oh, this comic is teaching me that in order to have sex with women, I need to get them drunk. Because that happens a lot in that issue. It's really creepy. Yeah, but it wasn't Guy doing the sex. He was helping his buddies get laid. That is called being, that's called being a wingman. And to be fair, it was all consensual <laughs> couples. It wasn't like two people hooking up they shouldn't have. It was people that were already in love, but still. Right. Ex- just ex- exactly. Exactly. So, you know, we could talk about uh, Hal and Aresia later. Oh, no, I, that, I'm not doing it. So, all right. <laughs> As I said, we're going to do a deeper dive now into Green Lantern Corps number 207. And folks, go out to our website, again, firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. We will post some images from a few of the issues before and some from this issue. This is from DC Comics, written by Steve Engelhart. Penciler is Joe Staden. Inker is Mark Farmer. Letter is Bob LaPan. Colorist is Anthony Tolan. Editor is Andy Helfer. Mention, uh, notice that? Andy Helfer is the editor. Covers by Joe Staden and Bruce Patterson. It was on the shelves September 18th, 1986, with a cover date of December 1986. Now, it is a Legends crossover. In fact, it says Legends Crossover Chapter 3 back in the old days when you can actually follow a crossover and know what order to read everything in. This is picking up right after Legends Number 1. The issue title is Simple Minds. All right, so Kilowog is being interviewed for the nightly news. And uh, as a result of the battle with Black Hand from the previous issue, the uh, alien Green Lanterns find, find themselves more accepted by the humans of Earth. Unexpectedly, Guy Gardner, the hero of the issue, returns to Earth, claiming that the old-timer trained him so well that he's been placed in charge of the other lanterns. They tend to doubt his honesty, but cannot get in touch with the old-timer to verify. Aresia says, get stuffed, and Guy responds by creating an elaborate energy construct of a floating jungle gem. Guy is able to completely outmaneuver them inside because he's a trained gymnast. Guy then declares he's the one true Green Lantern, where Aresia, you know, has a typical response of, he's the one true traitor. So, uh, in response, Guy tightens the jungle gem and traps them all inside. The lanterns uh, blow it up, but Guy's already escaped. Uh, Hal Jordan reminds them that uh, that Guy is brain damaged and will need time to recover. They decide to split up and look for where Guy might be. In New York, in the South Pacific, where Guy had created his criminal army, uh, Guy's hometown of, of Balmer, and uh, in St. Louis, where, where Guy's girlfriend lived. And also, they're going to check uh, Los Angeles, uh, where Guy was hospitalized when he was in his coma. So I'll take it from here. So Hal, Arisa, and Kilowog return to the Citadel where Guy's ex-girlfriend Carrie Limbo, oh joy, uh, Carrie is there waiting for him. Carrie explains that she came to them because she saw Guy's location in a vision and she is speaking on his behalf. Carrie tells Hal that Guy needs to be a whole man again. Now, this part, this is the part I was mentioning earlier that I think is really important. Carrie explains that Guy knows his mind has been compressed and he's fighting those limitations all the time. So he fights against all limitations all the time. So Guy's imprisonment on Maltus has been preventing him 
from properly healing, and his brain damage is still violently affecting everything he does. It's revealed that Guy wasn't sent to Earth by the old-timer. Instead, Guy had escaped Maltus. Now in Flagstaff, Arizona, the old-timer and the Green Lantern Honor Guard have caught up with Guy. Guy insists that they cannot imprison him again, but the Honor Guard are able to subdue him. Just as they begin to remove Guy's ring, and get ready to torture him, by the way, the other Lanterns all arrive. Hal pleads with the old-timer to release Guy. He explains that Guy will be healthier on Earth, and he'll have a chance to reintegrate into familiar surroundings. Is decided to leave Guy to find his own path on Earth. Guy unceremoniously flies away, as he has no interest in talking to the other Lanterns, and Kilowog is unhappy with these decisions and leaves for the Citadel, where he meets an emissary of the Soviet Union, who says he will be Kilowog's friend. So that is issue 207. Lot to unpack here. Um, and also, we're going to touch on all those issues, really, just general feelings on Guy. But let's talk first, uh, cover of 207. What you think, buddy? Man, I love this cover, really. It's Joe Staten, I think, at his best. It shows Guy, and he's in the middle of a bum rush by all of the Green Lanterns that are currently on Earth, and it's just him throwing every single one of, of them off, and he's screaming, basically, get off of me. Uh, it, it really sums up Guy's feelings at this point about about being imprisoned and being, being picked on, and him just throwing all of them everywhere. And then at the bottom, it says, guess who's back? So, yeah, I think it's a really dynamic cover. Oh, I totally agree. It, it is actually probably one of the best representations of Guy's relationship with the core ever done. It, it's perfect. There's some great Green Lantern covers with Guy. Like, uh, I love, uh, I can't remember, it's 194, 195. The one where he's in the shadows, and he says, like, the power's mine again. I oh, love yeah. that. That cover haunted me for years. I was like, I, just, I desperately wanted to read it, because uh, I was so interested in that cover. And then the one where he's in silhouette, and I think it's Chaken, where he's just, uh, or not silhouette, but like weird lighting, and he's like, Arr, and he's looking. there's some great covers with Guy in this run. But this one, again, summarizes, uh, you, you get the stateness, you get Guy's feelings towards the core. It, it's wonderful. I could have done without the upskirt shot of Aresia, but Staten had a real thing for her, which is super creepy. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. When, when you mentioned Guy, uh, he is one of those characters, and I know that I've heard you talk about it before. There was some artist that said that the way an iconic character is defined is if you see them in silhouette and you still know who they are. That would have been Jerry Conway. That was Jerry Conway. Okay, cool. Yeah, I, I knew it had, had to do with Firestorm. But Guy actually is one of those characters. I mean, Guy was created just his new outfit, even down to the the, the mushroom haircut that he had, <laughs> the institutional haircut. He's one of those guys that's just striking on a cover. You know exactly who he is when you see him. So let's see, as far as this issue itself, uh, this isn't Guy related, but it always has bugged the crap out of me. It's um, it's where John mentions again that he's from New York, so he's going to help help search search for Guy in New York. Says so that he went to college there. Um, they've screwed around with John's backstory so much since that he's not even the same character. I know that I mentioned that earlier, but but I just have such a love for John Stewart that him being from New York uh, is is always in my mind. He's not from Detroit or wherever it is that uh, that Jeff Johns put him because I guess Jeff puts everybody from Detroit nowadays. It's because Jeff's from Detroit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ex- exactly. But no, John's from one of the boroughs of New York. Uh, definitely. But let's see. So when Guy shows up and says that Appa reassigned him to be in charge of the Green Lanterns of Earth, I want to point out that Earth Green Lantern Corps fights him seven to one, but he fights them all to a standstill. So that just tells you how good of a Green Lantern he is, even with relatively limited experience. You have to realize he hasn't had that much experience. His The first time he ever used the ring, he was put into a coma for, for years, for months, actually, or years, three years, right? 
right? I was three years in the story. They say it's three years, but yeah, it was longer than that in actual publication. But I, you know, I didn't think about that. He did fight him off seven to one. In a lot of cases, in that scene, they're inside this giant elaborate jungle gym. And most of that, he's just using his own physical prowess. He's doing his gymnastic stuff. He's not blasting them. He's create sure he's created the construct, but he's not using his ring to beat them. He's using his own physicality, which is pretty darn impressive. Yeah. What one great thing that the later later uh, writers do is they take that and make him and Kilowog actually friends. Which I know I know right now uh, him and Kilowog are on two dis- different sides sides of the coin and hate each other. But eventually that they become two. I, the best way I can describe it in in today's nomenclature is they're two bros. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Where where whenever they see each other, they beat the shit out of each other. Then they go get beers. Right. So <laughs> we we just covered that recently in an issue of JLI. Yeah, that was a fantastic storyline, and I think it got introduced in JLI really. But yeah, I think I think that his abilities without the ring, I think, are are pretty impressive here. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, you talked about this earlier about Carrie showing showing up and speaking on his be- behalf. This still goes to my running theme about trying to understand how guy's brain is working right now. They she says that his mind's been compressed and. The, uh, because he's fighting the limitations of his brain, he fights all limitations. So that's why he doesn't want to go back to Maltus. He was being held a prisoner there under threat of mind control. I mean, I'm sure in his mind, he's already been screwed with enough that why would he want to go back? And then it, the point's proven when Appa, Chrisma, and uh, Apro confront Guy in Arizona. I mean, they try to mind control him again, you know, and the whole time he's saying, get out of my mind, leave me alone. He's just trying to be free. Guy's all about freedom at this point. He has been controlled by way too many people at this point. He's been held a prisoner. He's a, he's, basically, he's basically the Count of Monte Cristo. He's free now and he's ready to start messing up folks that messed with him. And, and I think that Carrie's statement really speaks to a lot of it. You just talked about it, but yeah, you combine those two things. The, the fact that Guy has absolute confidence in his objectives and that he's always raging against uh, limitations, that explains his rage against authority. I mean, it, it exactly explains Guy Garner and all of his behavior going forward. And it's interesting, we never got this in JLI because he's just a jerk there. But when you have this background, it's like, oh, that perfectly explains Guy. Right, right. And and that's the thing is what I think what I'm afraid of is that a lot of people were reading JLI and never read this backstory of Guy. So they don't know the building blocks that he's starting with as far as his brain damage and how he's moving forward and, and how he actually progresses. I'm sure most people first saw him in the Legends miniseries. Moving forward. Forward, uh, from that in the Legends miniseries shows that he's he's learning or relearning how to be a team player. I mean, he finds out in in the Legends miniseries he if anybody wants to know he appears in two, four, five, and six. He learns that he can work with a group and he actually enjoys it being there. He may enjoy looking at uh, the brand new Wonder Woman in her spandex, but you know he, he's enjoying being with a group of folks. Um, and he goes straight from there into the JLI. I think this is actually a progression. For guy. He's actually playing, he's not playing well with others, but he is actually playing with others now. I'm actually one of those people. I was only peripherally aware of Guy Gardner, first ran into him in Legends, and then later on, you know, learned about him in other crossovers in Justice League and stuff like that. So I didn't know any of this history. In fact, until prepping for this episode, I'd only read a couple of these issues and probably read them like 30 years ago. So I absolutely am one of those people. And it's also from interviews, now I'm, I'm, I may be speaking out of turn here, but Giffen and DiMatteis have both said that a lot of times when they got a new character, they didn't know much about the character. They just started writing them based on what they knew. So it's possible they may not have even known these two specific points, again, about raging against limitations and uh, complete confidence. But it, 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 whether they knew it or not, their their version of Guy perfectly emulates those things. Yeah, ex- 
exactly. I, I'm guessing that maybe not a lot of people by, you know, 1985-86 standards were reading Green Lantern at the time. That's the reason they switched the format of the stories a story over to gr- the Green Lantern Corps, would be my guess. I, I, I don't know. I think sales were probably on the decline, yeah. I mean, they, they ended Green Lantern Corps like around, what, 2225 or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so you know, I may have been one of the few that, that actually knew Guy's backstory going into Legends. In in my opinion, these days, I, I, and after rereading the story, these stories, I came to another conclusion, and it's different from what Hal says. Hal Hal uses the term brain damage pretty much at least fourteen to twenty seven times in, 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 in every comic he's in with Guy. I, in my opinion, I don't think Guy is brain damaged. The reason I'm saying that is the Guardians actually healed his brain damage. They healed it physically, though, and they brought him back quickly. I don't think they paid any attention to restoring the brain pathways that control his personality. Because, you know, they're the Guardians. It's not important to them about personality or emotions or feelings or anything like that. Um, it wasn't important in their minds. I'd look at it similar to uh, Star Trek The Menagerie, where uh, Vina is put back together by those big-headed aliens mm-hmm. that know nothing about how the human body works, uh-huh. but they get it, they get her functioning. I see, I, I, for some reason, big-headed aliens just put junk together and get it working without <laughs> without thinking about how it's going to be. I mean, I, in my mind, the DC Universe crossed over with Star Trek with the very first episode with the Menagerie. So- <laughs> All right. You, you know the nerds are writing in. The first episode is The Cage. The Menagerie is the one later where they retell the story. We don't yeah, need whatever. you put in the comments, people. <laughs> whatever. Uh, whatever. Uh, you can suck on my Vulcan ears. So... <laughs> So basically, I, I I think they're the same aliens. I think I think the Guardians and the big-headed aliens in Star Trek are the same, is my point. But yeah, I just think he's a completely different person from his first accident where the, uh, the lantern exploded. I think that this guy and that guy are only alike in name only. I don't think they're the same person. And what we have here is a person who isn't brain damaged, but who is basically like a child when it comes to emotions and dealing with others. But this is the point where he begins to grow like I said, and that goes in through JLI, where he, he grows some. So you're saying he's brain altered rather than brain damaged. That's an interesting way to put it. Now, for me, uh, I, I agree, but I don't agree to some extent. So Guy in the JLI, that version of him, is a character you love to hate. Okay? You, you still cheer for him, and you laugh at his antics. You might shake your head, you know, once in a while and be an embarrassment and be like, oh my gosh, but you still laugh. But this Green Lantern Corps version of Guy is an abrasive jerk. At no point do I find myself cheering for him, or do I find his shtick funny. Because I feel like Steve Englehart wrote a despicable character uh, who was only rarely heroic. I mean, only a few times. And sometimes he was a straight-up bad guy. In fact, at one point, he feels like little more than a henchman for Star Sapphire in some of these issues. Uh, whereas Keith Giffen and JMT and Mateus wrote a heroic character who became a team player eventually, uh, but he had some despicable tendencies. Now, you're saying that it was an evolution of the character, but I, would, I agree with that. It was definitely an evolution. But I wonder if it had been left to just Green Lantern Corps and he hadn't come over to Justice League International. I don't know that Engelhart would have given him that evolution and that growth. I mean, he Engelhart always wrote him pretty much as a horrible human being. Yeah, I, and and I would tend to agree with that. I, I would think that it, had he not left the Green Lantern books and gone into JLI and found someone else to try and find that kernel of interesting in him, because to, to, you know characters are not interesting if they never grow. Mm-hmm. And hell, a guy at this point, there's nothing but 
growth ahead for him. You know, if you're a good writer and you make it that way and you focus on the fact that he's starting at one point, where do you want him to end up at? So I do disagree with you that about him being brain damaged. Physically, brain damage is a physical ailment. I, the Guardians healed him of that. They did not. They he he had he has a perfectly fine brain, no matter what one punch from Batman did to him. I think I think that needs to be explained a little bit better because I think that the Guardians healed him, but it, they just changed his personality in JLI for 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 giggles, which it didn't end up being funny changing his personality around. But then if you go along with that, then you also have to deal with the ramifications of Batman picking on a brain damaged person who is actually technically handicapped. Oh, all of them. All of them. We've talked about this a number of times on the show, so we won't go too far down this rabbit hole, but everyone in the team is complicit in this not supporting Guy Gardner. Yes, he's a jerk, but if he's been either mentally damaged or mentally re- rewired, whichever way you want to say, they, they're horrible to him. And then when he gets punched and his personality changes, everyone just laughs about it. No one says, maybe you should see a doctor. So yeah, it's, pre- it's pretty awful. Yeah, I, I bet these same people, if somebody had had gotten hold of uh, Power Girl's Yellow Cat and were drowning it, that they would probably laugh at, laugh at that too. Oh my gosh. Well, I want to touch on a couple things here, uh, leaping off of what you said there. So specifically about Steve Englehart and versus uh, his version of of Guy versus the one in JLI, because uh, I I was doing some research and I read some back issue articles. Back in back issue magazine number 91, uh, which was September 2016, Steve Englehart talks about creating the character. And he says he created the character to shake things up. But he also says he regrets using an existing character because uh, he says that uh, DC didn't pay Steve uh, Englehart or Joe state and royalties as guy became more and more popular appeared outside of television thing or outside of comics and stuff like that they said because they didn't create the character they just reimagined an existing character and so clearly as you read this article that's a that's a big sticking point for Engelhart. now i bring this up because again i read multiple issues a back issue for this which includes uh some interviews with andy helfer and so it sounds like there's some conflict between andy helfer his editor and uh steve Engelhart. and i'm only speaking from these articles i don't i haven't talked to either one about this so i'm not i hope i'm not speaking out of school just looking at this anyway there appears to be some conflict conflict and hard feelings about Guy Gardner, and also some different versions of history uh, from Engelhart and Helfer. And I'll read from you here. This is from back issue number three, which is March 2004, which is an interview with Andy Helfer. And uh, as the editor, I'll just read some bits and pieces here. Remember, this is Andy Helfer saying this. I said to Engelhart, let's bring Guy Gardner back, only let's bring him back as a nut. Let's bring him back in some kind of uh, guy with delusions because he's been in a coma for 20 years. Steve Engelhart reluctantly brought him back, and I thought it was a great character to have there. So I pushed Steve to do it. And Steve Steve didn't want to. He hated the character. I remember I'd say, Steve, I don't care what you do. I just want Guy in every issue. So Steve would do a one-page scene with the character, and I'd put him on the cover. Steve would get pissed at me, and finally he said, I want this character out of the book. I'm not going to do him anymore. Then Justice League came, and I told Keith, Keith, I got a character for you, Guy Gardner. He's a Green Lantern. But Steve doesn't want him, so let's use him. So we worked him in, and he became the hit of the book. By the fifth issue, I was getting calls from Steve Engelhart saying he wanted the character back. I told him, you can't have him back. You gave him up. So that's kind of interesting. And again, I, history, people's memory, whatever, you know, I'm not taking sides, um, but it does show that Guy did evolve and that he was handled differently and that there was potentially an interest for Guy to go back to the Green Lantern books because he became so popular. Now, I, and this is going into my thoughts on all this, is that I think when Engelhart wrote him, I think he intended Guy to be a short-term throwaway character for those issues 194 through 198, you know, that big storyline in crisis. And I don't think Engelhart had plans after that because if you look after 
after that issue, for like nine months, Guy does nothing. He's a super minor character, and he's not going anywhere. Uh, not until issue 207, which we talked about, and then issue 211, he gets kicked out of the team. So I, again, I don't think that there was any plans there. And and I mentioned earlier, you know, what if Guy had not been picked up by the JLI? So here's what I think would have happened. If, if they hadn't picked him up for the JLI, I think Guy would have been relegated to becoming a minor character once Engelhart was gone. You know, every writer has like a pet character they focus on or whatever. I think the next writer would have gone in a different direction. You know, Guy would have become, you mentioned Salak, he would have become like Salak. You know, Salak's around, he's in the background, he makes appearances, but he's not a major character, and people outside of the Green Lantern readers have no idea who he is. Or, he could have been forgotten altogether. You know, think about characters like General Glory, or Justice League Europe's Maya. Those are good examples in the Justice League where the writers were focused on him. Uh, or, in, uh, if, you, if you're an Avengers fan, I'll say Triathlon and uh, Death Cry. Oof. But either way, the writers try to make these characters important, but once the writer leaves, they fade away, because no other writer wants to pick them up and use them. I think that could have quite possibly happened with Guy. Uh, if Again, if he hadn't been picked up by the JLI. Yeah, I tend to agree with you there. I, if this story is to be believed, I, it sounds like Englehart was having uh, second thoughts once he saw saw the popularity of the character. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know why he couldn't be used both places, but I guess it's the same reason why, uh, why Captain Marvel uh, left the JLI and Dr. Fate also. They didn't really have a tight enough editorial reign uh, to be able to have the same character in both places. Plus, I'm guessing uh, Keith and DiMatteis and them wanted the freedom to do whatever the hell they wanted to with a Green Lantern character. Could be. It's also the era of fiefdoms, too. Where, yeah, that's true. The silos. Yeah. yeah, where the characters existed in their little realm and didn't get to go anywhere else. Yeah. But Yeah, but I think you're on to something. I think, unfortunately, I think Guy would have been put back in the in, in the coma place. They would have, uh, Englehart would, ju- would have just written it to where, since the crisis is over now, the Guardian's, uh, the Guardian's fix of Guy uh, isn't needed anymore, and he would have been stuck back in his wheelchair. Or either, like you said, just faded to the background like Salak and and Kilowog and Chip and and a bunch of the other ones until a new Green Lantern Corps uh, came about, which wasn't for years after this Green Lantern Corps ended. Right, and there's no, nothing to say that Guy would have been one of the main ones. He could have been just forgotten. Now, obviously, Kilowog's had a lot of life outside of comics, but I don't know that, um, you know, again, without JLI's popularity, I don't know that Guy would have got there. Yeah, I, I, don't think, I don't think he would either. I mean, uh, JLI definitely faulted him. Uh, a lot of it has to do with what I was talking about earlier, just the visual aesthetic of Guy. Guy has a unique look. You look at everybody who's in, who was in JLI to start off with. Everybody had a unique look about them, from Mr. Miracle, Blue and Gold, to the Martian Manhunter, uh, you know, uh, Captain Marvel to start off with. Every person or every hero in there had a unique look about them. They weren't, they weren't a generic super team. And you could tell, especially with the faces work that they do with the art it's they gave them all a unique personality it wasn't like justice league in the 60s where every single one of them looked and sounded kind of alike and you could interchange their their dialogue you have a unique personality and guy who really bounces off of uh you know jazzercise uh, uh black, <laughs> black canary real well you know i mean things like that i i think whether they did it on purpose or not they hit on on a chemistry issue that i don't think could be replicated. And I say that now being that being that when it first came out, I hated it. But going back and reading it, probably read it again about 15 years ago. But but yeah, going back and read it, they they hit on some sort of chemistry there. And Guy was definitely, definitely part of the chem- chemistry. And speaking as someone who knows chemistry, he was probably the catalyst to the reaction of all those characters. He was the the thing that agitated them and shook them up to get them to start to start um, having some sort of 
overreaction. Oh, he was absolutely the breakout character of that series uh, at first. You know, eventually, I think Beetle and Booster either equal his popularity or, or, or come close. But at the beginning, it definitely, especially in the early days before the blue and the gold really became a thing, Guy was the breakout character. So, now you mentioned his look. I want to talk about that for a second. Because for me, the art in this series, uh, meaning Green Lantern Corps, has always been a struggle for me. Now, I, I recognize Joe Staten's ability and his skill, and I love his work in the 70s. I really do. However, in his eight, work in the 80s, just doesn't really, it doesn't really speak to me. Now, looking at these issues, though, I do find that I prefer Mark Farmer's inks over Joe Staten's pencils. Uh, at least, I, I think Farmer's a really good inker for him at this point. Yeah, I, I'm not going to take any bad-mouthing of Joe Staten lightly, just because I just think he's awesome. I think everything about him is awesome. Um, I do know that as the years went on from the 70s to the 80s, and even into the beginning of the 90s, uh, it, his his style became a little bit more cartoony. I think that's just... Uh, I think that happens to to all comic artists where they get simpler with their lines because it's, it's easier for them to crank out issues. But I, I have, I see nothing wrong with all these issues that we did that he, that he, that he had. And maybe it's the inking or, or whatever. But I know that when I first read, read these issues and first came across Joe Staten when I was, you know, 10, 13, I didn't like it either because of the cartooniness. I was more into like a Neil Adams, George, George Perez kind of, quote realistic uh, uh look you know but uh but yeah i i, I, lo- I love joe state now I'm, I'm 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 all in on him and after meeting him in person uh, uh i was at a convention once and i got him to do do me a, a wildcat uh and he was really nice his wife was really nice and the wildcat turned out freaking amazing <laughs> you jackass i was standing right next to you the whole time you were talking to joe state i was physically with you we we met joe together i was there when you got your sketch. Yes, I remember that. You <laughs> of were? I knew that. Yes, I was with you, you jerk. <laughs> anyway. Uh, who, who is this? <laughs> who's, who's this on my phone? What? You didn't Hello? take your bills today, did you? <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's a great guy. He really is. And, you know, I talked about the cartooniness of his art didn't speak to me. I mean, yes, he goes on to do He goes on to do Dick Tracy, you know, years later, and he's still an amazing artist. So I, I, I'm just saying this period was not my favorite. But now, going specifically into this, let's talk about this. So uh, there's some really good human interest stories in here, by the way, I should say. Uh, but it's just, there's so many convoluted plots. It's really confusing. And then the art didn't speak to me. But going specifically to Guy Gardner here, Joe Staten did design his look, which is important to know. And, w- and reading that, that same issue, a back issue I mentioned earlier, what Joe Staten did was he thought about what is a 12-year-old boy's idea of a tough hero? So give him a jacket, give him some straps and some studs and clunky boots and all that. And then he said he added in the haircut just to, to complete the look. Now, he did say, and I found this part fascinating, I had no idea. He said he had someone in mind when he was creating Guy Gardner. It was an actor named Tim Spigot Smith. I probably said that wrong because I'm terrible at this stuff. But it was uh, Tim Spigot Smith playing a character called Major Ronald Merrick on a PBS series called The Jewel in the Crown. And uh, he, in fact, Joe says in the article, Google the, Google the actor. And I did. And I posted a couple pictures here for Keith and I to share. And I'll, I'll post them in the image gallery. Holy crap. This is absolutely Joe Staten's Guy Gardner. I mean, you can see it in the face. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think I've ever seen uh, the jewel in the crown but just looking at these images that you sent i may want to it looks like it looks pretty good and and that uh that guy tim spigot smith i mean he has the look on his face like yeah he's he's ready to to throw down with seven other people at the same time doesn't care if he's if he's outnumbered or not he looks like he's he's ready to whoop some ass so right yeah 
Now he doesn't have the haircut, but yeah, that face, that expression. He even said he he patterned guys' sneer off this actor's sneer, which is interesting. <laughs> that is awesome. Well, I, you know, since since you sent me those pictures, I you know I'm just going to fan cast my guy Gardner if we were going to do it today, and I would definitely get Wes uh, Chatham. Chatham. Uh, he plays Amos Burton on on the Expanse show. Oh yeah, he'd be good. He'd be yeah, good. If, if nobody's watching it, you need to watch this. That is exactly how I, I would. He almost has the haircut in a couple of episodes, but, uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, I would definitely get him. And I think he's such a great actor. I think he could play a, a half brain, brain damaged psychopath, uh, who, who is lovable at his heart. Well, he even plays, he's got a, 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 <laughs> a mental chip issue or something in, in, in expands anyway. So yeah, yeah. yeah, he, he actually, he actually plays a sociopath where he has no emotions or feelings for anybody in this. He, I mean, <laughs> in that show, it's great. He, somebody will, will say something bad about somebody. He's like, what, do you, do you need me to kill him? And, you know, just, <laughs> yeah. Right. He'd, he'd make a great guy, Gardner. Yeah. So, Sort of in summary for me, uh, these issues really did help me understand Guy a lot better. It made me feel some sympathy for him. You know, explaining the horrible things that happened to him, uh, the brain damage or the brain rewriting, however you want to say it, why he becomes a jerk. Again, explaining his overconfidence and his raging against authority. I I still wouldn't want to hang out with him, uh, but at least I understand him better and I see what led to him in the JLI. And I understand why he's the way he is in the JLI. So I'm glad we did this. Yeah, I I am too. And I will agree. With almost everything you say, except that I, that you wouldn't want to hang out with him, because really, seriously, if if I were to go out to a bar, I would want I would want to be there with guy because uh, and actually, I'm I'll be willing to say more than half the times I've been out the bars with my friends, I have been with guy. I haven't been guy, but I have friends who are guy ish. I was just gonna say, <laughs> every time I've gone in there with you, I felt like I was with Guy Gardner. <laughs> oh no, no, no! I'm 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 the, I'm the nice. I'm the chip of my group. So. <laughs> Oh my gosh! <laughs> so, so yeah, um, yeah. Guy, guy is definitely some of the guys that that I grew up with. They're they're the guys who, yeah, they're an asshole, but they're your asshole. If that makes any sense. Sure. No, I get it. Yep. Yeah, they're 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 the guy that that is going to be the first one to not take any shit off another group, and will be the first one to to be right behind you if something happens. And but they're also the one who will give you the most honest feedback about dumb crap you're doing in your own life. They'll be the first one to say, "Hey, you're being a dumbass." Well, I'm glad you I'm glad you have those people in your life. I it sounds like they're good friends, but uh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks, it is now the point where we're going to nominate the One Punch Award. Now, this is different from the Bwahaha Award because, you know, the JLI issues are packed full of humor. Well, these aren't necessarily that way. So instead, we do the One Punch Award. And no, I'm not going to do the sound effect every time we say One Punch. I'm sorry, people. Anyway, uh, this is where we nominate the most interesting, surprising, or enjoyable moment in these issues. Uh, it could be funny. It could be serious. It could be whatever. Uh, both myself and Keith will pick one moment and will be awarded the coveted One Punch Award. Now, Keith, you're the guest, unfortunately for everyone listening. Uh, what is your nomination for the One Punch Award? Yeah, so so I was confused and I picked out a Bwahaha moment. Reading is fundamental, Keith. Yeah, I know. I know. I, I don't do words great stuff. <laughs> 
but but anyway, I, I I do have a one punch one. But but if it were a blahaha, it would have been when Chip was talking to Salak and he said, uh, "I know you joined this group uh, just to get companionship." And Salak said, "I'd say that the last berries you scavenged had fermented." So that, that was about the only funny thing in here. That's why I was trying to figure figure out while we were doing a blahaha. But you're right; it does say one punch award in this in this thing that you sent me. So with that though, my one punch is is Kilowog's in interview at the TV station with, mm. the, with the NBC Nightly News in New York guy, where Kilowog, way before anybody else that we won't mention came up with it, points out uh, fake news and how they're biased against, against the Green Lanterns. So <laughs> I just think that actually was almost a blahaha for me, just because it made me laugh at at the fact that, uh, that Kilowog is pointing out bias in the media. And this is way back in 1986. Hey, you know, it's not a new thing. So, you know, that that's my one punch. All right. Uh, mine is just that big, amazing, it's more like a scene than a particular moment, but that when, when Guy creates the giant jungle gym, the floating jungle gym, and he basically schools everyone else in the land, in, in the Lantern Corps. I mean, that's amazing that one guy, and not even blasting him with his ring, just using his uh, physical ability, shows up all the rest of the Lanterns. I thought that was awesome. I think that was the greatest moment, uh, probably out of all the issues we've talked about. And so that one gets my nomination for the One Punch Award. Now, uh, we could could argue it about uh, which one works, but you cited uh, fake news, so you lose. So uh, <laughs> I, I'm going to go ahead and win, give the award automatically to Guy Gardner for being a total badass and swinging around in the jungle gym. So congratulations, Guy. Yeah, I'll, 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 I will go along with that because anytime that Guy beats the hell out of seven uh, seven other Green Lanterns, you, you have to give it to him. You have to at least give him the trophy for it. There you go. All right. So congratulations, Guy. You have won the coveted One Punch Award. Wear it with pride, sir. Now, Keith, I need to ask a favor. Would you mind hanging out here at the Green Lantern Citadel for a while? Carrie Limbo just keeps stopping by to speak on Guy Gardner's behalf, and frankly, everyone's sick of her. If she comes by again, would you please tell her to get lost? I figure you're probably the most emotionally sensitive person I know to handle this issue, so you could do it just right. Dude, man, I've been waiting for like over 30 years to tell Carrie Limbo to get lost. I would be happy to do that for you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Now, don't worry, Keith, we will bring you back at the end of the show, and after this podcast promo break, I'm going to head over to Metropolis and the 25th century to discuss Booster Gold number 22 and 25. It's Citizen Kane Minute, hosted by film fanatic Rob Kelly and a collection of special guests. Citizen Kane Minute will examine the greatest film of all time, five minutes at a time. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. We're back from break, and now we're going to head over to Metropolis in the 25th century to talk about Booster Gold, number 22 and number 25, with my co-host for this segment. Now, my guest has been a fan of comics and superheroes for about 50 years, and his gateway drug to geekdom was the old 1966 Batman TV series, like so many of us. So he's already got a background in superheroes and humor. But you might be asking yourself, what qualifies this guy to talk about Booster Gold? Well, my co-host has been a Hero Clicks player for nearly 20 years years, and he's been helping to organize games and tournaments for about a decade. So I'd say this guy knows a thing or two about being a corporate sellout. Folks, please help me welcome Trent Lewis. Welcome to Metropolis, Trent. Thanks for being here. How you doing, man? Thank you, Jack. Great to be here, of course, because this is one of the best shows on the Fire and Water Network. But I guess we're about to find out if the network meets the gold standard, huh? Oh, man. Wow. How long have you been waiting to use that? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I got to ask you, since you're throwing the, the Booster Gold puns already, you're clearly primed for this, all right? I imagine your last name spelled with the S is probably the dollar sign, just like Booster. But what is your origin story with Booster Gold? Like, how did you find the character and what made you fall in love with him? Well, Booster is a complex character mm-hmm. that his motivations originally and origin is not the squeakiest, cleanest uh, origin. And he is a flawed guy, but yet he continues to do the right thing. Hmm. And I, I like that. Uh, I collected JLI a little bit late uh, at the tail end of the Gray Man story. And then, you know, the fight with Ace. Sure. And Booster got recruited. And what happened was, you know, the friendship between Beetle and Booster was just so much fun and relatable. The guy that got me into JLI we kind of had a friendship like that. Oh, wow. That's awesome. You know, we could goof around, clown around, do all kinds of things, have a good time. So were you both repo men? Uh, never that. <laughs> I, I probably wouldn't want to do that job. And thankfully, I've avoided them on the other end of the spectrum because I'm kind of physically responsible. So, uh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, look at you being a grown adult. That's impressive. Yeah, it is. <laughs> if you knew me better, you would realize the impact of those words, sir. <laughs> You know, you said something a minute ago that really just, I don't know that I really thought about, about Booster being a flawed character. You know, in some ways that almost makes him like a Marvel character because, you know, usually the DC characters are the squeaky clean ones. Uh, now, as you get into the Bronze Age, surely they add foibles and issues and things like that. But Booster's background of screwing up and trying to rebuild his life is sort of a, sort of like the tragic Marvel style of a character rebuilding themselves. Hmm. Very much so. And he tried to do the ultimate rebuilding. You know, he, he got away from it all, literally. By going into the past. One could also argue he was a coward running away from being arrested by the police. Well, you know, again, he's a flawed character. (laughs) We have our faults. You know, there was no way he could pull this off legitimately. Very true. Very true. Plus, he got Skeets out of the deal, which is always a good thing. And, you know, it's really nice to see Skeets here. It is. It is. This is a very rare thing in these two issues that we actually get to see Skeets and the Justice League International together. I know. It's so disappointing that they didn't bring him over. Now, as I understand it, originally when Booster joined the JLI, you know, Giffen and Demetrius weren't that terribly familiar with the character. And so they didn't probably even know Skeets existed. But then as time went went on, you think they could have brought him in. I mean, he could have been great comic relief with Oberon or anything, but I guess they, they just didn't see a place for him. Skeets kind of fills the niche in Booster's book that Ted would in Justice League. So it's almost kind of redundant, if you know oh, what I mean. Okay. And with Justice League being a team book and all, why would you take away from an actual member to cater to a sidekick, for lack of a better term? Wow. So you're actually approaching this from the creator side of it and thinking about it intelligently like a writer, whereas I'm just like, I'm a fanboy. I want Skeets, man. Come on. Well done. That's adorable that you think I'm that smart. It really is. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, why don't we get into this? So, folks, what we did was we looked at the Booster Gold series and identified two issues that feature the Justice League and said, all right, this would be a great opportunity to kind of call back to look at these earlier issues that took place, you know, quite a while as compared to where we are in the JLI coverage right now, but to see the JLI in context in the Booster Gold issues. And this would be fun. So we're going to talk about issues 22 and 25, give you uh, some heads up on the creative team. The script and pencils are Dan Jurgens. The inker is Ty Templeton. Woohoo! Represent. Letter is 
is Steve uh, Haney, I guess. Colors is Gene D'Angelo. Editor is Barbara Randall. And the cover on issue 22 is by Dan Jurgens and Terry Austin. And issue number 25, the cover is by Dan Jurgens and Robert Campanella. Otherwise, creative teams are the same. Now, we're going to go ahead and take these issues one at a time. So, Booster Gold number 22. Here we go. Cover dated November 1987. On the shelves, August 18th, 1987. The issue title itself is called Tortured Options. The story opens with Booster Gold in another dimension, and he's facing a choice. The choice is save the life of his sister Michelle, who goes by the superhero named Goldstar from her alien captor, or Booster can save the lives of 30,000 innocent people in the Metrodome baseball stadium in Minneapolis, where there's this rampaging monster. So Booster knocks out the alien and flies through the portal to Earth to stop the monster, while Skeets remains in Dimension X to find Booster's sister. Booster battles the monster as it rips through the Metrodome and crashes through Minneapolis. Help arrives in the form of the Justice League International. And this includes Mr. Miracle, Martian Manhunter, Captain Adam, Blue Beetle, Black Canary, Rocket Red Number 7, and the nice version of Guy Gardner. The JLI and Booster battle the monster across Minneapolis, and ultimately Booster gets inside this putty-like creature and expands his force field and expands and expands, stretching the monster from the inside out until it bursts like a balloon. After the monster is defeated on Earth, Booster returns to Dimension X. So much fun saying Dimension X. Dimension X. Now, meanwhile, back in Dimension X. Uh, Skeets has found Booster's sister, and he frees her. She's very weak, and uh, she'd probably be dead if it wasn't for the Gold Star costume that she's wearing. She's discovered by the aliens who viciously beat her, and then Booster arrives on the scene at the last second and protects his sister. Booster and Gold Star work together and successfully stop the aliens' plans of invading Earth. Sadly, as Booster and Gold Star attempt to escape Dimension X, sadly, Gold Star is hit with an electrical cable, which actually causes her death. And the explosion uh, propels Booster through the gateway to Earth. The next day, a funeral is held for Booster's sister in Maine. The Justice League members uh, that I mentioned earlier are there, plus Dr. Fate and Batman. Dr. Fate sends the hovering gravestone of Michelle Carter into, quote, a different realm where it will be forever safe from the ravages of time. Whew, man, a lot of Justice League action, a lot of fun, and ends on a really sad note. So, uh, let's talk about the cover, and then we get into the issue. So, the cover is this giant monster, and he's, he's towering over the city of Minneapolis. He's blasting his eye beams out. He's reaching for the Blue Beetle Bug. That's how big he is. His hand is as big as the Blue Beetle Bug. He's zapping, uh, what is that, uh, Rocket Red and Mr. Miracle, and then Booster shooting at him, and Captain Adam shooting at him, and Martian Manor's there, and Guy just looks kind of confused, and then there's a giant billboard. This says Interiors by Jurgens and Templeton. So what do you think of the cover? I like the cover a lot, and I'm going to refer to the creature that they fight as the giant alien putty titan, because he's essentially putty, and he just looks like some kind of mythological creature, which I find interesting. Absolutely works. Yeah, he's got these giant horns coming off the side of his head, yeah. Ray Harryhausen should have done him in the movie. <laughs> I don't know if you know this or not, but the Gold Star costume that Michelle is wearing, mm-hmm. she quote-unquote borrowed the gold star outfit the carter kids have uh, boundary issues quite quite obviously <laughs> it's interesting so she she stole it from her brother right yes it must be some pretty stretchy material for the way it fits her compared to him but i'm just saying well it was created by star labs those guys are geniuses there we go okay that works now before we leave the cover i do want to point out one quick thing the cover features the logo for justice league international which is interesting because this issue came out one week after jli number seven which was in fact the very first issue called Justice League International. If you remember your Justice League history, the book started as Justice League, 
and issue seven, it becomes Justice League International. So they must have really been coordinating with the Justice League International office very closely to, to have that logo one week after it premiered on the cover of the other issue. Well, you know, Max is kind of a slave driver, but <laughs> all, and, but you know, later on he became quite persuasive. So. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's all in the branding, right? Okay. So what do you got on this issue? Even though he's a time traveler, Booster can't be in two places at one time. So he's really torn by his responsibilities. And he even gets into the point where he's saying, like, Michelle comes first. But I love the uh, text that they add on page uh, number two, where they say he says it, but he doesn't believe it. That's yeah. kind of the conflict of Booster. He's he's rash, but he doesn't really do what he's saying. He he says one thing that is usually the selfish motivation. Mm-hmm. Does he heroic instead? That's one of the multifacets of the uh, gem that is Booster Gold, in my opinion. No, you make a good point. You're right. He has got a lot of bravado, and he's bragging, and he's he's full of himself, and he says the the most horrible things to women and whatnot. But you're right. At the end of the day, he usually steps up and does the right thing. Hmm. Yeah, it's a good point. This is the eighties. A lot of people were horrible that probably wouldn't be currently. You know what I mean? I'm, yeah, that's you know, true. A product of his time. Yeah, that's very fair. Although he's from the 25th century, so they must be pretty horrible in the future. But that's okay. <laughs> well, this issue, like I said, I really enjoyed. And the being torn with the responsibilities, you know, especially to his sister and wanting to save her, I think is kind of the core of this issue. The death of Michelle is kind of like the old yeller moment of this series. Mm-hmm. It, it tugs at the heartstring and it, it's a transformational event. It changes Booster, not only in this series, but in his later ones as well. Yeah, I, there's definitely a, a long tail on this one. And, you know, for me, I I haven't read the whole Booster Gold series and I don't have a lot of experience with Gold Star and Michelle, but just even just reading her in this issue alone, I didn't, I didn't necessarily get a strong feeling for the character, but I got a strong sense of Booster's attachment to her and what he's willing to risk for her. And so her loss, I felt it, even though I didn't know the character that well. And, you know, it doesn't hurt that Jurgen's art is great. And then at the end, there's this horribly sad scene of Booster just sitting in a, you know, white space, broken and, and crumbled because he's lost his sister. So, yeah, it's it's definitely a powerful move. And I do remember it echoing uh, later in, like, you know, the, um, I guess the Jeff John series or whoever was writing that series at the time. Jeff John's, and he actually brought her back, which was kind of interesting. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you noticed it or not, but this issue, there's a lot of 80s movies kind of borrowed from. Oh, yeah? Like what? Channeling. Yes. Now, that if you look at page 10, mm-hmm. we have the alien putty titan, right? And the alien putty titan tries to smash all the jailiers. And alien putty titan, <laughs> how many times can I say that? Right. Basically, the JLI members are like stuck under his hand as he lifts it back up to, you know, he sees a squash car, but he doesn't see them. Mm-hmm. That just seems like Jurgen's borrowed from Empire Strikes Back whenever uh, Han went underneath the uh, Star Destroyer. Oh, okay. Yeah, it could be. I can kind of see that. Yeah. Hiding in plain sight, but, you know, up against the body. Makes sense. Yeah. I think that's a really cool scene. And then we have uh, when the creature lifts his hand up and looks inside of it. Just the lack of wit possessed by the creature is Mm -hmm. so interesting, I think, and and so well depicted. Then they start blasting each other, which, of course, is always good fun. (laughs) It's a beautifully drawn piece. And, you know, with, uh, I'm trying to remember, this this one's, uh, yeah, Templeton's the inker. So, I mean, you can really see a lot of his clean lines, especially on the creature's face. I think it's done really well. And just the defeat of the alien buddy titan, mm-hmm. what happens? Yeah. They, they steal directly from Monty Python's meeting of life. Oh, this is the guy in the restaurant, right? Better get me a bucket. You know, we see Booster using his force field in a way that Giffen DeMatteis would never 
even tap into, right? I believe. And it's because I think that they always saw Booster's force field as more of just a personal force field to act as armor rather than Jurgens, who saw it as a power and not only a protective device, but an offensive device too, if need be. Which, you know, it's just different takes on the same character with different creators. Well, there's also the fact that the JLI really, do they really do fight? <laughs> really, do they usually use their powers? I do remember one instance, uh, it wasn't that long ago uh, as far as our coverage. It was actually in the, uh, the Kui 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 story where Booster actually created a force field and protected a small crowd of people. And I remember reading it being astounded that that was in there because it's like I kind of forgot he even had that power. And I'm like, oh, oh, that's right, because it gets used so rarely in the JLI. So, yeah, I'm, I'm agreeing with what you're saying, uh, but acknowledging also they, they remember remembered it at least once. So that's that's something. So I think there's a lot of 80s goodness in this issue, especially, uh, you know, borrowing from some films. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's some modern impact culturally, too. The Supergirl TV series, the earlier seasons, they had mm-hmm. these teleportation gates that were purple. Okay. And the teleportation gates in this issue, I almost looks like they were like the prototypes. Interesting. For what later appeared in the Supergirl series, which I thought was kind of interesting. And, you know, the modern reference that you get in parallels from looking at a comic that's how old. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't want to do the math. I'm, I feel old enough. Right. But you get my point. <laughs> yeah, we picked it up off the shelf. We don't want to think about that. But you know, I mean, the people working on the Supergirl series are comic fans, so it's quite possible. I, I think there's that possibility of looking at that and gosh, that last page where Booster goes through the blast and the explosion and everything. And there's the chest insignia for Gold Star. Right. Right there on the floor. And he just like picks it up. Tear in his eye. I know this might have a slight parallel to you in your life, and if you want to edit this out, feel free. But the loss of a sibling, I haven't had to face, but I have lost other family members, and it, it just tears you up. Yeah. And, you, and it, it is depicted so well on this last page. It's very, very powerful. And uh, speaking as someone who has lost a sibling, it the pain never stops. It never goes away. It gets easier. But yeah, and just seeing him dealing with it, and, and that Jurgens, the, the one panel, and I'll put this on the gallery, folks, uh, on that page is the bottom third of the page or so is just all white space and Booster sitting in the ground, kind of all balled up, uh, holding the, the piece of her shirt, just totally upset. And uh, it's very powerful. So I got a couple quick things to mention. So I, I mentioned that this issue came out one week after JLI number seven. So a couple things to notice with that. That means that this is the, the second appearance of the nice guy, Guy Gardner, because he, he started in issue number seven and this came out the next week. So this would be the second place anyone would have ever seen that version of Guy. And uh, along those same lines, again, repercussions from issue number seven, this issue features Captain Adam and Rocket Red number seven. Well, they just joined the team last week. So this is Booster's first time really working with them in a superhero capacity. We also get Dr. Fate this issue, uh, and he actually quit the team in JLI number seven last week, so he was nice enough to uh, come back around for this, even though he'd left the team. And it's interesting to think about, too, just for perspective-wise, Booster had only been a member of the JLI for about three months at this point. You know, I I, I find it hard to ever think of Booster not being part of the team, but yeah, it's only been three months at this point, so he's still really, really, really new to it. Uh, a couple other things just in, in regard to the JLI. So Captain Adam, he seems very, very chummy with Booster. Now, this would be probably because, you know, Jurgens is writing Captain Adam the best he can based on, you know, his experiences with Captain Adam, reading the comics and whatnot. But this version of Captain Adam isn't really the version that kind of appears in the Justice League comic because Captain Adam for many, many months is very much either a blank slate or a military guy. Uh, it takes a long time for Captain Adam to really warm up to a, 
personality in JLI, so you actually see more of him here. And Guy Gardner is actually kept in reserve this whole issue because of the amnesia thing. So he's just uh, floating aboard the bug, making pithy, funny comments about uh, daydreams and how pretty things are. And he wants to the giant putty monster to join the team, things like that. Uh, Jurgens did do a good job of infusing some of the JLI humor in here. There's a couple of really good quips. Nothing too over the top, nothing out of line. I didn't see anything in here. I'm like, oh, someone so-and-so wouldn't say that. But um, but there was definitely some funny bits in there. So I think he did a good job trying to keep it together. And uh, speaking of Jurgens, I should mention, you know, the monsters rampaging through Minneapolis. You may wonder, that's a bit of a strange city for a monster to rampage through. Well, Dan's from Minneapolis, so that sort of you know, kind of explains the hometown feel. So I do have one question for you about this. Did you feel like the JLI was handled well? Did you feel fa- did they feel faithful to you in this issue? Yes, in a way, but you're going to get creative differences based on the different lenses of the writer. Yeah. How they perceive a character or characters. But you can't really beat creative team of uh, Giffen and Demetrius, except maybe Perez and Wolfman hmm. at their peak. But that said, I think Dan really handled it well. I mean, you got to remember, this is very early on. They're not even in full blah-ha-ha mode in the Justice League book. You're right. They haven't even had moving day yet. Yeah. Which Captain Adam, you'll have to pardon the pun, really shines in that issue. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Whenever he attacks the security system, it, that that's just... That whole issue is a gem. Oh, it I really get, is. I, I let a friend of mine who didn't read comics read that issue, and he was just cracking up almost every page. It, it, it's just so good. It is hilarious. It is it is amazing. So and and yeah, and so I think that there's enough humor in here that it definitely reflects those first more uh, those first seven issues that were more action oriented. So I I think it works definitely. I don't know that I'm going to say the same thing about Booster Gold number twenty five. So let's get into that. Booster Gold number twenty five cover date is February nineteen eighty eight on the shelf. October 27th, 1987. You could have read this right before going trick-or-treating. The issue title is The End. Now, it is fair to mention, folks, issue 25 was the last issue of Booster Gold. Now, before we even get into the recap, i got to tell you some backstory here. So, in Booster Gold number 24, the issue before this, and Millennium number 4, oh, thank goodness we're talking about Millennium, right? So, in those two issues, Booster Gold is blackmailed by the Manhunters. They've stolen his fortune, and they've agreed to return it to him if he helps them out. So Booster agrees to help the Manhunters, thereby betraying the JLI and the other heroes of Earth. Then in Millennium Number 7, Booster reveals that he was actually working undercover the whole time, infiltrating the Manhunters, waiting for his chance to take them down from within. Well, the JLI doesn't exactly believe him. They don't necessarily think he was working undercover. They think he might just have been skeevy enough to betray them. So Booster Cold is kicked out of the Justice League. I I had no idea this happened, by the way, uh, because I don't remember Millennium, and I didn't find out until I was doing research for another issue here. I was like, what? So yeah, Booster was kicked out of the JLI. So Millennium Number 7 ends with Booster grabbing one of the New Guardian's chosen ones, uh, a Chinese woman named Zhang, and Booster flies off and plans to show her how rotten the world really is. Now, all of that takes place before Booster Gold number 25. So here we go. Now we're getting into issue 25. Martian Manhunter, Black Canary, and Blue Beetle seek out the missing Booster and Zhang at Booster's headquarters. There they discover, to their dismay, that the distraught Booster has destroyed his home, discarded his uniform, and departed accompanied by Zhang. Now, while they're on a walking tour of Metropolis, Booster and Zhang face violence from bystanders who recognize him, uh, even though he's in plain clothes, and they say he's a traitor to the Justice League. Later, Booster visits the airport and he attempts to access his private plane, but he's informed that his company actually sold the craft to LexCorp uh, without his authorization. Booster steals the plane anyway, because, I mean, why not, and uh, is soon shot down by LexCorp Pursuit Jet. Luckily, Booster has retained his flight ring, and he and Zhang escape 
on harm. Booster then seeks out his friend Rip Hunter, and he asks Hunter to return him to his own century. Unfortunately, Hunter does not currently possess a working time machine. And then Zhang says to Booster that he should remain and try and solve his own problems. But Booster remains unconvinced, until his three Justice League teammates arrive, along with Skeets. The Justice League members tell Booster that they believe he did not betray them to the Manhunters, and that he is still a full-fledged JLI member. They return his costume and explain that Booster can then move into the JLI embassy, since he's now bankrupt. And much later, Booster visits his former assistant, Trixie, and Booster has come to say goodbye, and that he intends to leave Metropolis and start his career elsewhere. Alright, so uh, real quickly, let's talk about the cover of this one. It is just a sort of hero shot of Booster looking pretty awesome. Uh, it is by um, Dan Jurgens and Ty Templeton on the cover. So what do you think of the cover? I think it'd make a great poster. It really would. There's a cocky look on Booster's face. The pose is not traditional superhero, but a original kind of pose that's interesting and kind of dynamic. Background with stars fits perfectly. Again, great poster, or maybe even a uh, good cover for maybe the next edition of uh, Booster Gold Collected. No, oh, there you go. Yeah, and, and you know you can't go wrong with Templeton inking. He just puts such a polish on everyone, so it is absolutely beautiful. So, all right, getting into it. So, uh, tell me, what you what do you think of the issue? Well, in your summary, a couple things that stood out to me, but maybe not you. Booster saw himself going undercover as a double agent mm-hmm. in an attempt to defeat and expose the Manhunters. So he wanted to infiltrate and expose. If you remember Millennium, which most of us have tried to suppress it as a bad memory. (laughs) You know, it was all about undercover, hidden elements. And, you know, these people would pop up in the heroes' lives and basically try to ruin them or destroy and defeat them through indirect means as well as direct means, which I always found some of them were handled very well. Others, uh, well, we won't get into that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're not going to talk about Lana Lang. I understand. Anyway, keep going. (laughs) But but Booster was, you know, seeing himself as a double agent. He also turned off Skeets in this issue. He literally kind of destroys everything he was working for in this whole series. You know, his wealth is gone, but he still has the mansion, but he destroys the mansion because it's kind of the home base of the Manhunters. Mm-hmm. I have a thought on that. Dan Jurgens. I had a chance to talk to him a couple times over the years on various things, and one of the conversations we had was about him ending series, because he put some finishing touches on an Aquaman series, and he did some with a Firestorm. And in both cases, you know, his view was whenever he comes onto a character, he tries to tell the best story he can. And then at the end, he always tries to leave the character in a good place so that the next writer can come on and tell interesting stories. He never wants to leave the character in a bad place. Now, obviously, Booster, he created himself, but still, in this position here, you know, he definitely tears everything down this issue, without a doubt. But by the end, Booster has rebuilt himself. He's got his costume back. He's got skeets back. Now, he doesn't have the headquarters, but he's a free agent, and he can go anywhere. So Dan has really left the character in a great place for the next writer, which obviously was given to Dimitez at this point. So I think he was kind of following his own philosophy there of, um, not, as he says, not breaking the toys. I have to agree, and I wish modern comic writers would not break the toys. Uh, the character of Zhang, you know, Booster early on in the issue is very depressed and down, and she is almost like a, a life coach to him. She, she's trying to help him. She's trying to point out, you know, yes, you're down, but you're good kind of uh, motivation, which I found rather interesting. And the way Millennium turned out, she's pretty much a disposable character, but she <laughs> did have an impact on Booster in this issue. She 
All right, so I'm very much of two minds with this. So, yes, she definitely played sort of the the conscience to him and be able to say, hey, no, look at this differently. You know, here's how you can make things better. But if I step back from it, what uh, one, one overarching statement, and this will, this will come together in a minute, I promise, but if you hadn't read any issues leading up to this, like I, I came into this and read issues 22 and 25. I mean, that is what I read. It is really hard to follow this comic book. I'm like, it makes no sense. There's so much backstory on what's already happened. But I guess, you know, to be fair, this is the last issue of a canceled series. So I guess DC didn't really have a lot of reason to try and make it new reader friendly. So that's, you know, that's fair point on their part. Um, and where I'm going with this is Zhang does act as the voice of a conscience and tries to help Booster through it. But if you step back from it, Booster kidnapped her. I mean, he stole her away again as for, you know, I don't know if it was against her will, but I mean, I would assume it was. And he stole her away under the premise that he was going to show her how rotten the world really was. Well, he doesn't actually do that. Um, that, that plot point kind of gets lost. That doesn't actually happen. So I just think it's sort of weird why she's there and that she was just so cool and laid back about him kidnapping her and just taking her all over the country. And she, you know, was a willing participant at that point. So I, I did find all that a little odd and hard to swallow. I see what you're saying and totally agree with you. This is part of the problem with events like this, where you try to wedge in major stories into like the end of a series. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're trying to put square pegs in the round holes here, I think, and that it doesn't work very well. It feels like tying up a lot of loose ends is what this feels like. And again, it goes back to Dan leaving the story in a good place. Right. But imagine what Dan could have done if he didn't have to force the whole millennium thing. Yeah, you're right. No, there would have been a much more interesting story here. You're right. Unfortunately, you know, you get editorial mandates that can stir up the flow of it. And, you know, he had a contractual obligation to make that fit in there. So I will say having Dirk betray Booster, even though that is tied in Millennium, is actually interesting. And I like that aspect of the story. Yeah, I think it was one of the better executed Manhunter attacks on the heroes. Mm-hmm. I'd agree with that. It, it kind of messes with everything that Booster worked for. And in the end, it kind of backfired because... Because they judged Booster more shallow than he is. Mm -hmm. And that's something about the character. That's kind of his shield or a, a persona that in modern interpretations, even though uh, Booster's most recent series isn't that modern anymore. Right. Uh, he basically has a lot of responsibility, but hides behind the fact that nobody takes him seriously. Yeah. It's kind of like the Batman persona, the gruff, rough vigilante loner, but yet he has how many psychics? <laughs> how many members of the Batman family? He's such a loner. Right. He's a loner with Nightwing. He's a loner with Red Robin. He's such a loner with Robin. He's a loner with uh, the Red Hood. He's a loner with Alfred. Uh, we can go on, but won't. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's kind of like that persona that isn't taken seriously that helps Booster be kind of the defender of the timeline. Well, I'm interested to see this version, because you know, th this version of Booster is somewhat different from the version of the JLI. It's not, not a complete departure, but like you said, this one has a more responsibility on his shoulders. This one uh, takes things a little more seriously, a little less jokes. I love the JLI version, and I love this version, and I can see definitely the through line, but there's some slight differences. So where I'm going with that is that I am curious 
curious to see what Booster is going to be like when we get to the conglomerate issue soon, when it's stepped away from the, the blahahaness of the JLI and Booster's in charge. I hope we get to see some more of this type of Booster in there, and I'm looking forward to getting to it. Unfortunately, that is one facet of Booster that I missed out on, and I do need to pick up that conglomerate trade. Yeah, it's out there. You can get it. I didn't really get to experience it that much. You know, I was a uh, college student at the time, and homeless people have more money than many college students, so I couldn't really... uh Really couldn't get into uh, too much, uh, you know, just the regular books. I was lucky to keep my JLI going. Right. And that, that, that is my entryway to or gateway to Booster, as well as probably my favorite incarnation of the character. Is the JLI version? Yes. Awesome. Awesome. Now, before we move on to the next part, I do want to mention, folks, if you haven't checked it out, you should check out Boosterific.com. It is a wonderful site dedicated to Booster. They've chronicled every one of his appearances. I mean, it's it's truly a thing of wonder, this website. So if you haven't gone, again, it's Boosterific.com. Now, Trent, here we go. This is the part of the show where we're going to nominate the One Punch Award. This is where we nominate the most interesting, surprising, or enjoyable moment in the issues. Both myself and Trent will pick one moment, and only one of them will be awarded the coveted One Punch Award. Now, Trent, you're the guest, so you get to go first. What is your nomination for either of these issues for the One Punch Award? For me, it's Skeet's paraphrasing Star Trek. <laughs> we're talking about the needs of the many versus the needs of the few, or the one, in this case. Mm-hmm. Michelle, I, I, I'm, I'm a geek at heart, and that just uh, pulls some heartstrings. And Skeet usually isn't a Jiminy Cricket, and I wouldn't say he was acting in that role here, but more of a highlighter of, come on, Michael, you're, you you got to get your head in the game, which is something I love about Jurgen's depiction, too. He has Booster refer to Skeet's as coach, yeah, which ties very well in with his ex-athlete history, which works very well for Booster because, you know, Jurgen's can take Booster in certain ways and explore certain depths because he created him, whereas, you know, he was a very new character and being handed off to very good creators but again like you said not knowing much history of him and about him i think uh i probably let them fill in the wahaha gaps with the character basically anything that they didn't know about him they just injected their own take which was again my favorite version of the character yeah well i mean in those cases when you're writing the character you have to make it your own they, they certainly did they knocked it out of the park so my nomination is a little bit different. Uh, normally with these sort of awards, I go for like funny or awesome or whatever. I'm going to go for a sad one this time. Uh, I'm going to go for the moment with Booster curled up on the floor holding the discarded uh, or destroyed costume of Gold Star. That one just got me. I feel like that was the most powerful moment out of both issues. There's some great punch the air hero moments, certainly in these issues, but this was the one that got me the most. So that's my nomination for the One Punch Award is Booster uh, in his sadness on page 19 of issue 22. So now we got to decide which uh, moment walks away with the award. What do you think, Trent? I got to go with you. I like to hear that. <laughs> that moment, it resonates with Booster through a majority of his career. Michelle's death, even Johns uses it and reverses it in the version of the series that he handled. Mm -hmm. It's impactful. It is a, an emotional connection that affects the character for a very long time. And even, even when Johns brings her back, Booster's counsel that gnaws at him that she could wind up dying again. Mm. He's a very overprotective brother towards her and like doesn't even like let her out in the field most of the time when when, when he's doing very superhero duties. You know, he wants her to stay, stay safe. I don't think he wants to face that again. 
I can totally understand that. That makes perfect sense. And it's, it's got to be a great motivator uh, in the story to push that forward. So I don't really want to say congratulations uh, on the One Punch Award in this situation, given how sad it is. But uh, I will say it anyway. Congratulations, Booster. You have had the most uh, powerful moment in the issues. So there we go. All right. Now, Trent, I need to ask a favor. Uh, would you mind hanging out here in Metropolis for a bit uh, and supervising the cleanup of uh, Booster's old headquarters? The building is completely collapsed, and there's probably leftover Manhunter booby traps and stuff lying around, and clearly Booster isn't reliable enough to get the job done safely. Would you mind taking care of that? I don't mind that at all. In fact, hopefully I can get Skeets to help me out, and if we can get that time bubble, we might be able to get this wrapped up last week. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. Now, don't worry, Trent. We will bring you back at the end of the show, and after this podcast promo break, I'm going to head over to New York to discuss Power of the Atom number nine. Between the golden age of Atlantis and the rise of recorded history, there were ages undreamed of. Hither came heroes and villains possessing swords and magic, whose deeds became tales and legends. I have come to relate these sagas. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. Days of High Adventure, a new podcast discussing a variety of comics that fall into the fantasy or sword and sorcery genre. Available on most podcast services and Anchor FM. We're back from break, and now we're here in New York City, or maybe it's Ivy Town. I don't know. Anyway, we're here to talk about Power of the Atom number nine, featuring the JLI. My co-host for this segment is a unique individual, and his written feedback on podcast episodes is legendary. Now, you know you've made it. You've really made it in the realm of podcasting when this guy leaves you a comment. But also, you will know fear as you experience the wild ride that is his manifesto. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome back to the show the man who put the crease in the Rolled Spine Podcast Network, Mr. Diablo Frank. Welcome to back to the show, Frank. Thanks for being here, man. How you doing? I'm missing the Snyder Cut to record tonight. So for once, I'm actually happy to chat with you, Shaq. <laughs> but seriously, it, it, it's great to be one of the few returning guests on the show, and it's perfect timing. What with Despero War going on, it's like the greatest Marshmallow story of all time. Despero is one of my favorite foils of the Alien Atlas. Plus, I know how to actually pronounce his name. And, you know, this is just a high watermark for the JLI series. Uh, but I do have to ask, are we doing the one with Gypsy or the one with the Mayavana? Uh, we're going to do both of those, but... Not with you. So that's how that's going to go down. Instead, I'm going to have you talk about Ray Palmer, the Atom, in a not-quite-beloved series. So I'm terribly sorry about that. Still better than the Snyder Cut. <laughs> is it everything? <laughs> oh, the hate letters I'm going to get from people for that. So, yes, we are going to talk about Power of the Atom. So this thing's published by DC Comics. So this, uh, just to give you the, the details on it. Cover date was February 1989. On sale date was January 3rd, 1989. Again, it's Power of the Atom, issue number nine. We don't even get the run-up to it. We don't get what comes after it. This is totally looking at this issue in an isolated fashion because the JLI is featured very heavily on it. And in fact, to give you a little bit of perspective, this one is on the shelves the same 
same time as JLI number 24, uh, which is obviously right before the launch of Justice League Europe number one. So at this point, you know, Justice League is just doing gangbusters. So in truth, uh, Justice League was probably brought into this Power of the Atom comic to help boost sales. Which is funny because the week this comic came out, you could also buy Jerry Ordway on Superman, the first issue of Morrison on Doom Patrol, which could go with the new issue of Animal Man that was also the same week. You could get Legion 89 number one. You could get Rick Veach's Swamp Thing or Neil Gaiman and Sam Keys on the second issue of Sandman. And why would you waste your money on this comic this week? <laughs> I, I can tell you I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I picked it up uh, in, in retrospect. So uh, it is written by Roger Stern, the beloved Roger Stern, penciled by Graham Nolan, inkers K.S. Wilson, letter is Albert Tobias de Guzman, colorist is Nancy Houlihan, editor is Mike Carlin, and cover is also by Graham Nolan. Frank, why don't you go ahead and describe the cover for us? So we see from the perspective of the Atom as he's lifting up Guy Gardner's foot to trip him while Batman and Martian Manhunter look on laughing. Martian Manhunter has a giant cheesy grin on his face. It's hilarious. Yeah, they, they're definitely selling you the hilarity. So as the Martian Manhunter expert in the realm of podcasting, how do you feel about this Martian Manhunter portrayal where he's got his hand on his hip and the big uh, you know, jolly green giant smile? Well, again, going back to the Snyder Cut thing, this cover is great compared to the interiors. <laughs> All right. I, I love this cover. In fact, we'll talk a little more about it later. So why don't we save that, I guess. Let's get into the issue real quick. I'll do a quick recap. So the issue itself is called Victory Day. So the alien invasion is over, and Martian Manhunter is now asking Ray Palmer the Atom to join the Justice League International. And Ray isn't really sure how he's going to say no until Guy Gardner leads a drunken conga line through the embassy. So the Atom says that he isn't joining because there's just too many jerks on the team. Meanwhile, Batman's trying to recruit Hal Jordan. The Atom interrupts him to tell Jordan to think about about it, to really, really think about whether he wants to join the team or not. And as if to prove his point, the Green Lantern Nort floats into the room and the Atom takes his leave. In the streets of Manhattan, it's VI Day, and the celebration of victory over the Alien Alliance has gotten out of hand. The Atom apprehends a drunk driver, and then he breaks up a riot. Batman arrives on the scene to say the JLI are sweeping the city for more trouble, and Ray says that Guy Gardner probably started the riot anyway. Then in Dr. Hyatt's office, the phone rings, and the Atom travels out of it into the middle of a surprise party organized by Ray's lady friend, Ricky, which is, uh, her name's Dr. Enrica Negrini, and I probably said that wrong. Ray appears most surprised by the longing look from his crazy ex-wife, Jean Loring. She's there with Paul Hoban, who's her new husband, who apparently has been drinking too much tonight. Ray continues to mingle and is soon has enough and tries to slip out, but he runs into Jean. Ray tells Jean about the death of his Lilliputian people and his lady love the princess, and Ray and Jean share a sorrowful embrace in the kitchen. Unfortunately, both Ricky and Paul see this and look on with jealousy. Da-da-da! You're the one who wrote the synopsis and added the word Lilliputian and thought that was going to work out for you, so you have no one to blame but yourself. See, the people at home don't know that I stumbled over that like eight times. <laughs> they just sounded seamless to them because of the magic of editing. <laughs> So, Frank, all right, here we go. JLI play a pretty big role in the first half of this comic. And so, again, it merits talking about in these regards. So what do you think of this issue, man? Oh, it's terrible. Like most of the issues of Power of the Atom, uh, <laughs> nothing like exploiting the popularity of guest stars in a sad attempt to look cool by dunking on them as lamely as possible. He's like the passive-aggressive Kadar Hall. 
Ouch. Uh, you're not wrong there. You know, like, I feel like, uh, well, first of all, it, it's an interesting idea. It really is to contrast the straight-laced hero with the wacky hijinks of the JLI. In concept, that, that works. That's a great idea. But it does really paint the JLI with the worst possible brush. They really do. I mean, they call them bozos. They call them jerks. You deal with Guy Gardner being drunk. You get Nort. I, you know, they didn't even try to show any of the positive aspects of the JLI. You know, what they could have done was show something positive and Ray just say, you know, oh, I'm not the right fit for the group. But instead, it just the JLI comes off like a complete disaster. Looks like Batman and Martian Manhunter are desperate to recruit some normal superheroes. And it feels to me, again, looking at this going, JLI's selling like gangbusters right now and Power of Adam's Probably not. Uh, it feels like this is more Roger Stern's commentary on the JLI rather than Ray Palmer's. That's just my take on it. Yeah. It, the question is, which is worse? Is it that Roger Stern couldn't write comedy and he thought he was? Or that recognizing that he couldn't write comedy, he decided to to be a jerk about it? And there's no real win there for him either way. So it's probably best that he remains silent. And I'm sure there are tons of people asking about his Power of the Atom run. <laughs> Now, see, I'm a Stern fan. I, I loved his Starman run. I loved his Superman run. This is one of the few misses, uh, you know, Avengers, gosh, this is one of the few misses that I can look at and go, eh, this, do- this doesn't work for me. Now, do I, the name Dwayne Turner's knocking around in my head. Was he an artist on this book or was he writing the book? No, he was the artist. He, okay. he was the one who launched the book. I think that when he was coming in, they thought he was going to be a, a hot new find, which is something that was kind of a thing for Dwayne Turner's uh, career because he kept popping up on high profile books that could have potentially broken through, but for various reasons didn't. So he never got to be as big of a name as he could have potentially been. But also, I do think that there was a ceiling on him as well. Didn't he do Sovereign 7? He did. Okay. Enough said there. So No, but but it was a good looking book, uh, especially for DC in that time period. It looked like Image. That's it. it Yeah, it did did look like Image. And ultimately, he ended up at Image. He had a long run on Curse of the Spawn. That's probably his highest profile work. Yeah. So someone should do a podcast about Spawn. Oh, well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, also, he was he launched Cage at, for Marvel in the early 90s, which was advertised as having an acetate cover, which would have been, I think, among the first that they ever tried to do. Unfortunately, whether the numbers weren't there or the technology wasn't there, it ended up coming out with a lame uh, metallic ink cover. Hmm. And so it went from a book that probably would have sold well on the stands to one that had a sh- almost as short of a shelf life as Power of the Atom. So that was, you said Cage, like Luke Cage? Yeah, you remember that book? Where they, where they gave him more of an urban look, they got rid of he like he's ripping off the yellow shirt and he's got more of like uh NWA kind of outfit on. Yeah, I, I remember I liked that series actually. Mm-hmm. I remember it was infamous because the writer was overwriting and the first splash page was Luke Cage drowning in the vat. And I remember a reviewer was talking about no, he's actually drowning under all the captions. <laughs> well, bringing us back to this, where I was going with this was did Roger Stern start the Power of the Atom book or did he pick it up from somebody yes. else? Yes, that was launched because you, you may remember they DC was doing a great job of bringing back their their icons as a new hotness. You had the probably the most popular artist in comics, John Byrne on Superman, and then you got the uh, at least the second most popular artist in comics, George Perez on Wonder Woman. You had Frank Miller on Batman, and so it became a selling point. It's like, look at these great things we've done with these excellent creators. What are we going to do next? And one of the books that tried to take advantage of that was Power of the Atom with Roger Stern and Dwayne Turner. But as we mentioned, Dwayne Turner never really happened, and it, this is a notable misfire for Roger Stern, who's known as being Fire and Water Podcast Network, uh, recently did an episode praising Roger Stern, a spot 
Holland episode, which I enjoyed. And I think that he in particular was a great Marvel writer. I don't think sometimes a, a, somebody who's a great Marvel writer is necessarily a great DC writer. And you've mentioned some DC books that you liked. I did not really like any of his DC stuff. I just like his Marvel stuff. But I acknowledge that he's a great writer or at least a solid you know, journeyman. But it just was not working on this book. And the art was part of the problem. But I think the whole package, it was misguided. I, I, and given that a lot of the heat behind the icons was taking them in bold new directions, Adam had actually already had his bold new direction when he became the Barbarian and was drawn by Gil Kane in his late career prime. So it, it was actually kind of a letdown for him to go back to doing superheroics. Yeah, sort of the Adam was really uh, an interesting take. And if they had stuck with that, it probably would have done better. And I'm remembering now that house ad, you're right, where it showed all the different covers and they said, you know, we did this, we did this, with this. Now it's the Adam's turn. So, and by the way, you, you just, I noticed how you try to slip something in there. You're like, oh yeah, I wasn't really a fan of Roger Stern's DC stuff. Look, pal, we've been in each other's orbit for 12 years, and I know for a fact you love to bash on Roger Stern's Starman, and yet you haven't even read the stupid thing. You just like to attack it without any knowledge. He looks like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. What do you, what do you, where's the appeal? No, you, you, had, you have volumes of complaints about it. stealing rogues gallery, all this stuff. It's like me bashing on Warner in the Bronze Age. I like to do it without having read the material. So there we go. We're even, sir. I've never licked concrete, but I don't have to know I don't want to. All right, so so in this comic, right? So uh, taking us back to it, Ray totally bashes on Guy Gardner, right? He's just totally bashing on him. And then when there's a riot, Ray actually increases his density and kicks a guy in the groin. That sounds to me like a total Guy Gardner move, personally. So I don't think that Ray has a lot of room to complain. That and I'm sorry, that Guy Code, Bro Code, whatever you want to call it. You definitely don't want to go for the Nards, but you especially don't do it as your first action. And you especially don't do it if you're a superhero punching a normie. There's just – you can't not be a jerk under that circumstance. But actually one of the reasons why I like Adam is he is kind of a jerk. That's, that's He's the straight-laced jerk rather than the one that is the obvious overt one like Guy Gardner. But they're both jerks. That's probably why it's uh, sort of an oil-and-oil oil combination, I guess. <laughs> well, one thing I did like in this is something that I never really given any thought to, and it cracked me up. There's a great moment where Ray kind of like tells Martian Manhunter he's not going to join the team. And he, he says some pithy comment and does the cool, dramatic thing that Ray does, which is he shrinks and disappears. So it's, it's the equivalent of walking out of a room, like a mic drop, walking out of the room. So Ray does that. He does this dramatic shrinking and walks away, right? But the, if you think about the way Ray's powers work, and we get to see a chance to see that in here, he does. He does the mic drop, walk, it shrinks. But he's still in the room. He's still mm-hmm. right there. He's actually just walking across the room to the door the whole time. So it's like he's hoping no one happens to look down and notice that he's still in the room when he does this, you know, cool comment. So I love to, I like to think that people are like, uh, Ray, I know you just try to do the mic drop, but you're right there. I see you. You're, you're still walking out of the room. It's going to take you 20 minutes to walk from here, you know, seven feet away. So sorry, your, your, your cool storming out didn't quite work. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that Martian vision can catch the flea that's bouncing along the carpet. Right. <laughs> And of course, they do that in part to set up the joke where he trips Guy Gardner, which is spoiled on the cover. Gosh darn, you know that it would have totally worked otherwise. Um, what gets me is Guy comes in on the conga line, and I want to say that he he's singing uh, Rare Earths uh, Celebrate. I just want to celebrate another day of living, right? 
And so then the Ray trips him and he does this joke where he starts singing the Beatles Day Tripper. And I literally didn't get the gag until I was doing the notes. It's like, oh, that's what that was. Day Tripper and then sad trombone. <laughs> I actually got that the first time around. But uh, yeah, it's... <sighs> I, you know, it's sad because we spent so far in this episode talking a lot about those uh, Green Lantern Corps issues, which I've actually developed a lot of appreciation for now, and the Booster Gold issues, which were good. And then this one is a bit of a letdown here at the end. It's not great, uh, but it's not terrible. I mean, it's an entertaining comic, but looking at it, I said, like, if I, if I read the series from start to finish, would I have a better feeling about this issue? I'm just curious. No, no, this whole <laughs> book is awful. Look, this is back in the days when you could pretty much guarantee a book at least two years, and they canceled this at 18. So everybody knew what a big stinker this was. Mm, okay, so... It, it, it was never good, and it never got better. You know, like, and I'm a guy who sees like, some good stuff in Fate, the Jared Stevens Fate. Right. You know, we're both uh, fans of the Giffen Suicide Squad. So yep. we're both people who are capable of, of finding the, the the qualities in derided books. I'm a power... I'm an Adam fan, but I am not a Power of the Adam fan. The only reason why my podcast was called Power of the Adam is because I had a nice logo for it. <laughs> so I, I should have mentioned that, I guess, at the top. I didn't bother to. Yes, Frank had a pod, uh, had a blog for a number of years about the Atom, and then he had a podcast about the Atom. So you were a perfect shoe-in for this, sir. All right, so I, I, I do have to ask one question as the Ray fan. Or, I'm sorry, as uh, the Atom fan. He, in this, he rides the air currents of New York City. Like, mm-hmm. how does that work? I've, lo- I've watched a, we- a leaf in the wind, and it does not uh, able to go where it wants to go. How does he control what direction he goes and doesn't just smack into the side of a skyscraper? Here's the thing. A few years ago, they did a study and they found these spiders. They would spin a web that was sort of like a parachute. And between that and having uh, some abilities over, like they could actually detect the electromagnetic current of the Earth. And so these spiders could actually float across countries. Uh, so maybe science, you know, it's, it's he's a physicist. He is somehow able to adjust his density and his height and everything else. So I'm not willing to get caught up in the air currents thing. I'm going to just assume that he's got some means of propulsion. I don't necessarily love that because obviously we're all fans of him traveling by phone. One of the best parts of this uh, issue was that he gets caught up in call forwarding and explain that one to the kids. Why don't you? Uh, (laughs) I don't want to see him flying, but I'm not going to get hung up on it. It's fine. It's okay. He's stealing from Wonder Woman, which doesn't happen terribly often. So, you know, I'm happy about that at least. Well, I I think I've said everything I need to say about it. I'm focused on the JLI stuff. I'm not going to focus on the surprise party at the end with his lady friend who gets upset and all that and and crazy Gene Lauren. If if you want to comment on it, feel free. Otherwise, I'm ready to move on, sir. The one thing I will mention is that everybody at that party is actually somebody from the comics, and most of them are from the 60s comics. So if you happen to to have a run of the original Adam comics 20, 30 years after they came out, you could be like, oh, that's cool, that's cool. Today, nobody knows who any of these people are. Yeah. And nobody really knew in the 80s. So uh, that right there is part of the problem is uh, who, where, where's your audience for this? This is a, Again, the original Adam series got canceled really, rather young for a DC book in the 60s. So uh, you've got to have an audience and they, they, they were playing to an audience that didn't exist. I, I think maybe uh, creating Ryan Choi might have been the smart move when they were ready to try and bring the Adam back. Or at the very least, give us an Al Pratt series. I had my issues with Ryan Choi as a character and as a concept, but in execution, it probably was the best Adam series, especially in terms of the writing. Uh, Gail Simone had a good handle on the character. I've heard good stuff about the Rick Remender stuff. Um, As an extended run of the Adam, it's probably the best series that there ever was. 
until I get my beloved Al Pratt version. That's that'll happen someday, I'm sure. All right, now we are going to move on to the One Punch Award. This is where we nominate the most interesting, surprising, or enjoyable moment of the issue. Both myself and Frank will pick one moment, and only one will be awarded the coveted One Punch Award. Now, Frank, you're the guest, which is unfortunate for everyone at home. Uh, what is your nomination for the One Punch Award? The next issue blur, because that way we knew we was over. <laughs> Mine's not that far off. <laughs> Mine's the cover. <laughs> <laughs> I love the cover, him flipping Guy Gardner on his ass. I love that bit. I, I think it worked. Yeah, I like it in the issue. I like it on the cover. I think that I think that's worthy of it. It, it makes a promise that isn't delivered upon, unfortunately. Oh uh, no, he he totally flips Guy Gardner. This this yeah, actually no, happens. Yeah, about the humor. The oh, humor, my friend. okay. Yeah, you think it's going to be funny? It's not funny. That's fair. Um, I will say one more thing. It was cute that they had the splash page of Martian Manhunter pulling an Uncle Sam. I want you. Yeah. Unfortunately, it was done better in the inset card from Justice League Task Force number one. Uh, yeah. So, so it's like there's no winning here. So I'm I'm gonna stick with next issue, Blur. All right. Well, I uh, I'm I'm gonna uh, immediately allow mine to win because uh, I don't want to give you this, any sort of satisfaction. So I've known you too long, and I know it'll do to your ego. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, congratulations to uh, Ray Palmer. You win. Whatever. All right, folks. <laughs> Frank, I need to ask a favor. Uh, could you stay here at the New York Embassy for a little while for some completely bogus and ridiculously nonsensical reason, which makes no sense in the context of this recording? Since you're the guy who years ago suggested I make up this BS uh, and have the guests come back at the end of the episode? I, I Actually, I, I really need to hit the tube to get to the Texas Embassy, so I think you guys can ring without me. <laughs> Uh, well, don't worry, Frank. Uh, I'm just going to ignore everything you said. Uh, we'll bring you back at the end of the show. But for right now, I'm going to cover your listener feedback, folks, in a segment called... Justice Log. Now, folks, remember, as we go through your feedback, head out on the social media. Use our hashtag, PoundFWPodcast, or tag us at JLI Podcast. As I always say, it's about building a community of online JLI fans around the show. And remember, when you're posting comments and you're outside of the United States, please let me know, and we will assign you the appropriate embassy. Now, this time out, we're going to be pulling comments from our website, our email, social media, all that kind of stuff. But we're just going to be pulling bits and pieces of your comments. You guys left a lot of feedback on these two annuals. So I can only cherry pick some of the comments to cover on here. But please go out to our website. Again, it's fireandwaterpodcast.com slash JLI. So you can see all the conversations and you can participate as well. Now, we're going to be covering our most recent episode on JLA annual number four with my guest Aaron Bias. And JLE annual number one with my guest Sean Myers. All right. First up is Bradley Null. Bradley says, this is the comic that I have most associated with Justice League versus Dark Knight debates that happened in my local comic shop. I was pro-humor in the superhero stuff, but other fans were calling it unrealistic. However, Dark Knight Returns was the example of realistic. My view was both were good, but nothing with superheroics was realistic. This issue, however, is the one that planted me on the Justice League side of the debate in the eyes of the other debating fans. It's strange because the Cat Saga is where I accepted my position as defender of the funny, but this annual is where I remember my friends starting dismissing my arguments as me not taking things seriously enough. 
enough. That first little redneck LCS had a lot of what we would now call toxic fandom. I stopped having conversations in the store because of, quote, penguin guy or, hey, cobblepot comments. So in my mind, the Cat Saga is where I, as a reader, decided humor was cool for my personal reading. It's a positive memory, and I've read those far more often. My defense of this annual, however, was the end of my discussion of comics in public for several years until a second local comic shop opened. Oh, Bradley, that's horrible. I am so sorry. Being bullied and toxic fandom is some of the worst. I used to work in a comic book store, and I witnessed a lot of it firsthand. So I'm sorry you went through that. Gus Casals from our Argentina embassy uh, has a couple podcasts of his own, the Alfred Pennyworth Presents podcast and his Legion 60 Years Later podcast. Gus writes, I was planning on coming here and commenting how much I hate these two issues since I saw the announcement, but upon hearing the podcast, I'm a little more subdued. Justice League Antarctica is definitely a jump-the-shark moment where it comes to humor for humor's sake, and one of these issues that, unlike the rest of the series, I hardly ever revisit it. I realize now that it's much more tight in a controlled piece than the all-around mess I felt like it was at the moment. I'm glad you stopped to talk about Linda Medley. At the time, she was the target of much hatred and vitriol. In hindsight, probably just for being a woman. Also, her animated cartoony art had not become the rage it would become shortly after this. Glad you mentioned the Arthur Adams inked piece that she drew, because whoever came up with that pairing saw the potential for Linda to become an Adams-like force. Glad she finally got the accolades for Castle Waiting. Yeah, Gus, I mean, I I didn't have a lot of experience with Linda Medley, at least that I could recall, but reading that issue, I was really impressed with her artwork and really enjoyed it, and I'm looking forward to seeing more of it. Or from Gord Tolton from the Canadian Embassy and his podcast, Prairie Justice, the Greg Saunders Vigilante Podcast. I just love saying it that way. Uh, he says, Rob Kelly inked a JLI annual, and he went to the Kubert School? I'll never wash these ears again. <laughs> Thank you, Gord. Uh, and Siskoid from the Firewater Podcast Network, who does shows like Zero Hour Strike, so Hot Me or Not, and many more. Siskoid says, to be fair, of all the times Rob's told it, this was the best. Well, you're not wrong there, Siskoid. He really did spin a great yarn. I even played it for my wife. So Then we heard from Paul Hicks from the Australian Embassy. He does shows like DC OCD and Waiting for Doom and more. He says, I took the Justice League Antarctica issue all the way from Australia to the Raleigh Galaxy Con in July 2019, because I knew Giffen and Demetrius would be there. Unfortunately, Keith canceled, but when I caught up with JM, I told him this was my favorite ever issue of the run, and he confided it was his favorite as well. Aw, that's wonderful. Then Paul pointed out that uh, a long time ago, he sent me a Justice League Antarctica Easter egg that he found in a Doom Patrol comic, and I failed to mention in the episode, so I apologize for that. Yes, he, uh, while he was prepping for an episode for Waiting to Doom, Paul stumbled across his page. Uh, it was in Doom Patrol Volume 5, issue number 15, written by Keith Given, of course. And if you look at it, uh, I posted it on the comments, by the way, of last episode. You can go in, again in the comments, you'll, you'll see the image. You'll see that there's these penguins standing around, and they're underneath their feet. On, there's a sign on the ground for Justice League Antarctica, like it had been left there and abandoned. Awesome. Great find, Paul. Thank you so much. Then we heard from my buddy David Ace Gutierrez. He says, Aaron Bice was a great guest. I hadn't read this particular JLA annual until years after its publication, as I'd parted ways with the league at this point. The comedy overtook the action, and I wanted to see more of the mainstays of the DCU. I throw my money towards mutants instead. Great annual, though, and a nice detour. Then we heard from DC Dave, and he says, I'm sure I've heard Rob Kelly tell that story at least five times. It never gets old. It's a joy to listen to. Just like Rob making monkey sounds. It never gets old. <laughs> that uh, is a bit of an obscure reference for those of you who don't listen to our other shows. Uh, Rob does a monkey sound for the Detective Chimp, which is absolutely freaking adorable. So, then we heard from Jason Lady, 
author of the young adult humorous fantasy adventure novels, Monster Problems and Super Problems. He says, for me, Justice League Antarctica Annual is one of the high points of the JLI run. I remember buying it right off the shelf at our LCS, bringing it home, and the whole family cracking up at it. He says, one of the best things about the Injustice League is how earnest Major Disaster is, while all the other guys are very cognizant of the fact that they're a bunch of losers. He is taking everything dead seriously and keeps trying to behave with gravitas, and it just adds to the comedy. Then he says, the Justice League Europe Annual was not a favorite of mine. First, the two superhero teams versus a giant robot wasn't very compelling. And the second, as Shag and Sean noted, the Global Guardians are just a bunch of thinly sketched characters and not written to be interesting. Then later he says, the dome itself popped up in the issues of the Teen Titans Spotlight and the Len Wein Paris Collins Blue Beetle series and mentions that there was a member at the time called Fleur de Leaf, who he says, uh, who was French, and it's odd that she wasn't in the Justice League Europe as a member and never even showed up. You know, that's an interesting observation. Yeah, if there was a French member of the Global Guardians, it would make perfect sense for them to show up. Hmm. Then Jason goes on to say, you guys were wondering who Bushmaster looks like. He absolutely looks like Agent Liberty. He's orange and blue, and the other is yellow and blue. Or Space Ghost, minus the cape. Or Ravager, or Flag Smasher, or Quake Master. They all have similar looks. Well, thank you, Jason. Yeah, I think I had mentioned Agent Liberty and Ravager on the episode. But uh, yeah, Flag Smasher, uh, Quake Master, they're all good suggestions. Then we'll hear from Chris Franklin from the Firewater Podcast Network. He does shows such as JLU Cast and our upcoming Superman 3 Movie Minute, and much more. Chris says, I'm glad Aaron got to talk about the issue he so loved. I know it's a favorite of many, but for me personally, this was a time when the peanut butter to the chocolate ratio was going a bit out of whack for me. My Reese's peanut butter cups were now oozing peanut butter everywhere, and I was starting not to like the flavor so much. Oh, Chris, why you gotta bring me down? I was just starting to forgive you over what happened during the superhero movie debate bracket. <laughs> then Chris goes on to say, having encountered the Global Guardians in one of my very first comics, as discussed on the For All Mankind podcast episode number seven, I was always excited to see them show up, although maybe not as excited as Sean, but really, who is? Uh, I wasn't as big a fan of the Queen B, however, I didn't get the appeal of these untouchable villains back in the day, and DC seemed full of them. Luther, Queen B, everyone involved in Task Force X that was at odds with most of the heroes. I guess this old-school, late Bronze Age kid wanted some justice served and some bad guys put behind bars. No, I totally get that, Chris. Uh, I guess maybe because I came up during that era of the untouchable bad guys. Again, you mentioned Luther, uh, Queen B, a great example is uh, Kingpin in the Daredevil era, you know. I kind of love the untouchable villain, but, you know, to each his own. Then we hear from Liz Ann Oswald, who has her own YouTube channel. Uh, Liz points out, I had mentioned Owl Woman uh, extended her claws and there was a schnicked sound effect. Uh, Liz says, so does that make Owl Woman the X-24 who's moonlighting? <laughs> Nicely done. And then Liz says, it was cool hearing Shag uh, on the Two True Freaks Network with Paul Spataro talking about Spider-Man with Leapfrog and his son in Back to Bins. Oh, well, thank you, Liz. I appreciate you listening to that. Yeah, we, on Back to the Bins, we talked about a spectacular Spider-Man issue written by J.M. Demon that was full of JLI references. So if you haven't heard it, go check it out. Then from Brian Linton, so Sean and Shag, the two of you pointed out that the big plate of donuts that Impala is eating on page 22 of Justice League Europe Annual. I also noticed he's eating a donut on the opening page of the book, and he appears to be offering Jack-O-Lantern a plate of donuts on page 48. So does Impala's apparent donut obsession make him the Martian Manhunter of the Global Guardians? Uh, you know, Brian, I don't know, but it does sound like maybe he has the ability to make a plate of donuts appear out of nowhere. That'd be a pretty cool power. Then we hear from Tim Price from the Outcasters, Batman and the Outsiders podcast and the Batgirl and Huntress podcast. Tim comments on the Bushmaster uh, question. He says, yes, the Bushmaster's orange mask made me think of a villain in Batman and the Outsiders number 27, Cobra. And he says, plug, plug, plug. Of course, because he's, he's plugging his own podcast, Outsiders, Batman and the Outsiders. So you guys should give it a listen if you haven't tried it yet. Then as far as the Just League Europe annual, he says, did we just have a repeat of the plans from JLI number seven, where the manipulator creates a threat to make the heroes look good? And in JLI number 11, where the manipulator unleashes a big robot? And both annuals post climatic moments have off-panel characters being heard by on-panel bystanders? The Justice 
Justice League Antarctica singing and the Justice League Europe and Global Guardians crabbing? It's honestly not a criticism, but I can't help but see that. And with 30 years of hindsight, perhaps an indicator of trouble for the books. Uh, you might be onto something there. Then he goes on to say, regarding Justice League Antarctica Annual, for a team that should have been a one-issued gag, we're now on their third appearance. But dang, it's fun to see their antics. And Mike McCone draws the heck out of them. Like when the Injustice League is climbing the tightrope between buildings, it's just awesome. Then Michael Wagner wrote in, commenting about Aaron Bias had to wait five years to be on an episode of the show. Michael says, is JLE number 27 available? That was my first Justice League of this era and one of the issues that got me addicted to comics. Hmm. Well, Michael, thanks for asking. And maybe folks, when we record Justice League Europe number 27, you guys will find out whether Michael's the guest or not. Then we heard from Symbol Pending from the UK Embassy and the uh, Power Girl blog of the same name, Symbol Pending. They write, keeping track of what and where to find all these books is a bit of a pain in the butt. And alas, I don't have the funds to throw down on the omnibus, so I'm glad I have this podcast to do all the heavy lifting for me. Aw. Well, thank you, Symbol Pending. But I will say, yeah, it's it's a little tricky to figure out which was reprinted, which isn't, which is available digitally, which isn't. Most of the Giffen Dimitea's run is available digitally. But for those issues that aren't, and we're about to come up on a whole lot of Just League Europe that aren't, my recommendation is just simply go to your local comic shop, they're probably sitting in the 50 cent bin, to be honest, especially this era of the Justice League. Uh, or, you know, just order them off one of the online servers from eBay. I imagine you can get them darn cheap. Uh, Simple Penning then goes on to say, I'll admit I have not read any of the Global Guardians appearances, so I'm curious if they suffer from many of the kinds of teams of being a little cliche and one note. Yeah, Simple Penning, I think you're kind of seeing that throughout the comments here. There's a lot of people that feel they're pretty thin as characters. Now, there's a chance they could have been fleshed out, but they never were. Then we heard from some guy named Diablo Frank. I've never heard of this guy, but apparently he does something called the World's Fine Podcast Network, includes shows such as a Martian Manhunter podcast, a Wonder Woman podcast, and much more. He writes in to say, Justice League Antarctica Annual is definitely a high point of the run. Probably one of the five best single issues produced. Mike McCone was in top form, and the freedom allowed by the usage of the Injustice League Plus made for some of the funniest material, only enhanced by the contrasting horror elements. Unquestionably, one of the books I'd put in someone's hands if I was recommending the JLI to them. Aw, well thank you, Frank. Then we heard from Ward Hill Terry, so seeing Nort in the ice and snow made me wonder how James DiMatteis resisted using the setting of the Arctic just to use the title Nort to Alaska. <laughs> Thank you, Ward Hill Terry. Then we heard from Mike Dinus, who says, Pacific Canadian Embassy here, still trying to clean the seaweed rain and craft beer out of the transporter, so I'm a little late getting to this episode. This was a fantastic show with some great guests. Aaron and Sean were great to hear from and had some great insights. Then he says, This Just League Antarctica annual, Moving Day, and Kahui Kahui are some of my favorite JLI issues. I I was all in on the comedy, and Just League Antarctica to me was the pinnacle. Then he says, This era of JLI and its humor was right up my alley. I love Justice League Antarctica along with Gru and Ralph Snart Adventures. Then he asks out to you guys at home, Where's my now comics friends at? So let him know, folks. Then he says, Like I mentioned last episode, I was feeling the extremeness of the 90s coming on, and I just didn't want that, so I totally went the other way. Give me the funny. But then again, I've had this argument before. Comics are a medium and not a genre. So we can have funny superhero comics and the gritty grittiness of the darkity dark, dark superhero comics. Or even non-superhero comics. I'm being facetious here, but the point still stands. Well, thank you, Mike. I appreciate that. Then we're from Adam Ackerman from the Denmark Embassy. He says, I wonder if they have the Little Mermaid to be the one who notices things amiss in the Global Guardians uh, as it goes against the satirical unwritten law of Denmark called the Law of Janty. Uh, now, he outlines all of the laws here. I'll just shoot through some of them. But uh, So what he's suggesting is that Little Mermaid resisting the brainwashing is actually uh, going against these satirical uh, laws. So it says, uh, you're not to think you're anything special. You're not to think you're as good as we are. You are not to think you're smarter than we are. You are not to imagine yourself better than we are. And it goes on and on just talking about how people uh, aren't better than others. So uh, yeah, it, it could be. I, I don't know a lot about Denmark.
Denmark. Obviously, you live there, sir. Uh, I don't know a lot about GMD Mateus' awareness of Denmark, but it could very well be connection. Thanks, Adam. Then we're from Martin Gray from the Scottish Embassy. Does a blog called Too Dangerous for a Girl. Martin says, Just Like Antarctica is such a classic, but what a bucket of ice water Shag put on it by worrying about how the mental health of Silver Age and Bronze Age baddies was portrayed when viewed from the 2021 perspective. Is there a hero or villain who doesn't need their heads examined, putting on lycra and going out looking to get punched every day? The difference with the likes of Big Sur is that their issues are more obvious. Sorry, Martin, I didn't mean to be the bucket of ice water on a fun comic. I apologize. Then Martin goes on to say, I love that Shag gave some love to Godiva and Dan Jurgens and Aaron Lepresti's ridiculously underrated Justice League International New 52 series. I wish DC would give the good lady a prime spot again. Maybe in a historically accurate costume. <laughs> I see what you did there, Martin. Well done. And Martin says, I love the Linda Medley art in the Justice League Europe annual. There was a freshness to it. Certainly was, Martin. Then we hear from Dr. Jennifer Swartz-Levine. She says, this episode was so much fun. But looking forward to the Justice League Antarctica episode for a while since I've got soft spot for Nort and Killer Penguins and Skyline Chili. <laughs> Thanks for coming to my defense on the Skyline Chili, Jenny. I appreciate it. Also, Professor Alan Middleton also defended the Skyline Chili. Then we heard from Everton Vieira do Carmo from the Brazilian Embassy. He says, I've been waiting for this edition since the beginning of the podcast. I must add that Nort is very competent in this edition. He is the one who wants to patrol. He finds the laboratory. He investigates. He brings the video to the HQ of the Just League Antarctica. He transports the team. He protects them with the power ring. And he's the only one who was really fighting the penguins. He was eating them, but the method proved to be effective. You know, Evertom, I didn't even think about it that way. You're right. Nort was super duper effective. That is so weird to say. That's a sentence that not many people have ever, ever uttered, huh? Then we heard from uh, somebody who just goes by Jonathan. He says, the Bushmaster resembles the tick. The mask, the chin, the overconfident smile. Brian Linton says, of course, spoon. Then we heard from Eric Leiden who says, just like Antarctica number four gets my reverse Bwahaha award for a great serious moment in a silly story. When the Just Like Antarctica is trapped underground in North's bubble and Major Disaster says he's going to save everyone and prove once and for all that I have what it takes to be a hero. And if you don't, we're going to die anyway. Wow. Yeah, that was some pretty powerful dialogue there. And uh, I agree. It was a really moving moment. We're from Superman Radio Revisited Podcast. It says, question for Aaron since he used to blog about Green Arrow. Was that Oliver Queen and Dinah in the unemployment line at the beginning of Just League Antarctica number four? So I went ahead, looked up that picture and sent it to Aaron. Aaron says it's possible. If not, it's got to be Warlord. Me personally, I think it's the gambler. Uh, but either way, check that out folks. It's uh, in the beginning of Just League Antarctica number four. Share your thoughts on that one. Then we hear from Jeremy Daw who says, my Just League Omnibus number two arrived today. Now I have a physical copy to continue to follow the JLI podcast when new episodes are posted. Aw, thanks so much, Jeremy. I appreciate that. Then we hear from JT the Exterminator. He was reading Hawkworld, uh, issue number three, and he says, yes, I'm reading Hawkworld. It's actually pretty enjoyable so far. And then he stumbled across the ad for Just League Quarterly number one. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that, JT. Then Zach Attack writes, I started reading my ever-growing Just League International comic collection along with the JLI Bwahaha podcast. And I opened to the fourth issue and found that it's been signed by the legend himself, Kev McGuire. I bought this at a local Comic Con three years ago. Awesome, Zach. What a great find. Abel Padilla wrote into me uh, mentioning the cover of an old comic, Marvel Age, if anyone remembers that book, Marvel Age number 32. He says that uh, that cover reminds him of a classic Maguire cover, but it's cool because it's got Alpha Flight. It predates the Maguire cover by almost a year and change. So what the cover is, is promoting the, at that point the X-Men Alpha Flight crossover, It's which by the way is near and dear to my heart, drawn by, I think this is Paul Smith, uh, if I remember correctly, this cover. But anyway, it's got all the X-Men and Alpha Flight characters from that series looking straight on at you, and it does look a lot like 
like the classic JLI stance that McGuire would do. However, I feel like this is a little different because McGuire's trick was all the characters were always looking up at the camera. Uh, but in this case, everyone's standing. Um, it looks like maybe they're standing. Out. You don't see bleachers or risers, but it's almost like they're stacked that way. Uh, and they're all looking straight ahead. So I think there's a distinct difference, but I can definitely see the McGuire uh, sort of uh, similarity. So thank you, Abel, for pointing that out. And we're from Paul Wildenberger. And uh, oh, this, this is kind of special. He says he's been going through boxes that have been stored at my parents' house for the last several decades. And I came across this. And he sent me a photo. It is of old dot matrix <laughs> printer paper. You know, it's got the sprocket feed perforated on the side. And it's dated April 6, 1987. So you know it's legit with the printer paper, right? It is a letter that teenage Paul wrote to the new Justice League book. Uh, unfortunately, it never got printed. So he writes, Dear League Makers, this is the first comic book that I've ever written to in my seven years of collecting. The reason for this is that I believe the Justice League has more potential to be one of the greats than many other books that I have read. And believe me, I've read a lot. The variety of characters and the endless amount of possible storylines gives this comic great promise. Then at the end, uh, Paul goes on to say, I would very much like to get in on this destined to be a classic comic book. I'm therefore offering my suggestion to the Name the Letter Column contest. I believe that the best title for the column would be End Justice for All. This is the name that I feel would most suit the theme of this fabulous book of yours. Please consider my suggestion carefully. I want the Just League to have whatever it needs, and I would like to help. Aw, Paul, you were such a nice teenager. I love this letter. It's so genuine and heartfelt. I adore it. And I gotta say, your End Justice for All letter column header, it's kind of than Justice Log. I like it. Then we're here from Jeremy Patrick uh, from the Australian Embassy. He wrote in to say, I have to share with you my favorite new tradition. For the past year or so, whenever a new episode of the podcast comes out, I grab the relevant issues from my lawn boxes and head down to my favorite sushi place for a long lunch. It's my monthly blissful happy time. And then he included a photograph showing me him at the sushi bar with this comic. So, Jeremy, I can't tell you how much that warms my heart to know that somebody out there is taking this podcast and making a, a special afternoon of it just to give himself some probably quiet time away from work and, and enjoy and uh, wow thank you so much Jeremy for sharing that and uh, I apologize for this episode because you probably had to drag like I don't know 15 comics down to the, <laughs> the sushi shop with you so and then uh, we've got several nice comments I'll just name check a few people uh, Professor Alan Middleton Maz Inger Brent Thomas Lance Kurtzman Jake Muir and Jimmy McGlinchey also had some nice things to say so thanks everybody uh, and this month the Double Stuff Award we don't get a chance to give these out too often but the Double Stuff Award this month's going to Hoover Jeremiah the Double Stuff Award is when you do something uh, over the top to help promote the show or just something incredible generous. And in this case, Hoover did something generous for me. So, wow, I, I'm personally touched. Thank you. He sent me a print that he picked up back in 2013 of Power Girl drawn by Michael Golden. And it's even signed by Michael Golden himself. It's super cool. Uh, now, think this through. It's Power Girl drawn by Michael Golden. You know the man can draw some sexy women. So, I unrolled this poster and within seconds I was already in trouble with my wife. She's like, what the hell is that? So, thank you, Hoover, for that long conversation with my wife. <laughs> now, this is the part of the show where we thank everyone who shared the JLI podcast on their social media timeline, meaning Facebook and Twitter. It's a long list of names. I know this, folks, and I say it every single time, but these people help support and promote the show, and why are you doing it? So, anyway, uh, it's important to me that we recognize all these individuals, because they are part of our JLI family. So, uh, here is to everyone who helped promote the last episode by sharing it on Facebook or retweeting on Twitter. Our thanks to Aaron Bias, Alan Middleton, an unofficial Hugo Book Club blog, Andre TFG, Between the Pages blog, Billy Delicious, Chris Franklin, Chris Lydon, Coffee and Comics, Collected Edition, Dob Creative, Damien Droud Whiter, Dave's Comic Heroes Blog, David Ace Gutierrez, David Capal, Days of High Adventure Podcast, Digest Cast, Dr. Range, Dr. Jennifer Schwartz Levine, Ed Moore, Fade Out Podcast, Fan Films Fridays Podcast, Federico Hernandez, Film and Water Podcast, For All Mankind Super Friends Podcast, Green Lantern HG, Gus Casals, Homework the Podcast, James 
James Young, Jeff Poyer, Jeffrey Brown, Jonathan Dye, Justin Steiner, Kichi Baker, Lizanne Oswald, Mark Lax, Mark Baker Wright, Martin Kogan, Mash 4077 Cast, Matt Anderson, Matt Ev, Michael Kramer, Michael O'Brien, Michael Thomas, Michael Jameson, Mike Dynas, Mountain Comics, Nuno Duarte, Outcasters, a Batman and the Outsiders podcast, Paul Hicks, Paul Kean, Pod Dylan, Pragmatic Gollum, Prairie Justice, a Greg Sanders Vigilante podcast. <laughs> Sorry, I just love saying that. Uh, Rad Adventures, Relatively Geeky, Roger Pre, Rolled Spine Podcast, Scott X, Sean at Death Christ 2000, Sean Ross and the Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Siskoid, Superman Radio Revisited Podcast, Superman Movie Minute, The Voice of Paul, Tim Price, Treasury Comics, Trekker Talk, Warlord Thanos Podcast, Willie Yarbrough, Zane Reed Johnson, and Zeb Oswald. My thanks to all of you for your support of the JLI podcast. Your feedback is such a critical part of this show, and I really mean that, folks. And this community of JLI fans we're building together is absolutely the best. I adore all of you. Yes, even you. And if I've forgotten or missed anyone, I am really very, very sorry. It is probably the fault of Aaron Bias or Sean Myers. Just let me know, and I'll be sure to include you on the next episode. So please keep those cards and letters coming, folks. Our website, again, is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. Leave your comments on the show post there. That's where most of the activity is going on with communication, and it gives you a chance to communicate with others. Over on Facebook, you can hit us up on facebook.com slash JLI podcast or just like it international Pwahaha podcast Twitter we are at JLI podcast our email is JLI podcast at gmail.com my thanks again to Aaron Bias and Sean Myers for appearing in the most recent episode of the show and thanks to you listeners for such a fantastic collection of feedback now we're going to take a quick podcast promo break and when we come back we'll see if we can bring Keith Trent and Frank together in the same location I'm Mr. Fixit, and this here is my consigliere, Diablo Frank. The Lion's Cogliostro. Same difference. Spawn is one of the most successful comic properties of all time, with best-selling books, animated series, toy lines, and etc. That stinky movie, all the lawsuits over who has what rights. Don't be a comedian, Frank. We got business to handle. We're here to pimp out our new show, Spawn Talk. About Todd McFarlane's cursed anti-hero on his fight against the forces of heaven and hell in a doomed quest to be reunited with his beloved wife, Wanda. No, the show is called The Spawnometer, named after the countdown clock on Al Sims's Hellspawn supernatural power and undead lifespan. Yeah, yeah, whatever. And the gimmick is we're covering one issue of the comic per episode in 22 minutes or less, one minute for each page the comic runs. Then we'll briefly look at another Image Comics creator or series in roughly chronological order, reflecting a quarter century of creators' rights opportunities at the greatest publisher in the industry. Then we're going to dump a letter section and some ads at the end of the show, just like Image Comics does. New shows will appear on the Rolled Spine podcast feed through iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Shout Engine, and the Internet Archives. Until we immediately start blowing our deadlines, just like Image Comics. Shut up. Why do you got to be such a wise guy? That's why you got no friends. All right, folks, we're back from break. And, yep, it does appear the JLI teleporter has brought Keith, Trent, and Frank together for us. Now, Keith, thanks so much for coming back to the show to appear on this one. It's been an absolute blast. I feel like my eyes have been opened about Guy Gardner. And uh, this was really a, a worthwhile journey. So why don't you please tell the listeners where they can find you on the Internet? Well, uh, you can normally find me mainly on Twitter uh, at KGBUNC. But if you're not interested in me personally, then you can uh, – I also have another uh, Twitter handle 
handle that's at Sports and Comics. It's something that I've been working on for over a decade and haven't done shit with, but I'm kind of gradually working my way up to it. It's going to have to do with making sense of the professional sports leagues in the DC universe. There's also a website, which also don't don't raise your expectations, but it's uh, kgbunc.wixsite, W-I-X-S-I-T-E dot com slash sports and comics. So if you want to check out either one of those just to see the bare bones of what I'm working toward, you know, you can check it out or you could just, hell, you just go to your local pub. I'm sure I've been there at some point. <laughs> That is probably true. That is probably true. Oh, well, yeah. I, and and by the way, Shag, you might want to get Carrie Limbo out of the bush I threw her in. I got tired of her. Let's just leave her there. Let's just leave her there. <laughs> so, Keith, thanks again for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man. Now, Trent, thank you so much for being here. I'm really glad we had an opportunity to have you on the show to get you to talk about your beloved Booster Gold. This was a lot of fun. So why don't you tell the listeners at home where you were finding your geek joy right now? I help run Heroclix at my local uh, comic and game shop, and I play JLI hero click teams quite often and awesome. also I also have this crazy idea where you know booster and beetle are schemers right always trying to make money so I have a uh, blue and gold championship wrestling involved in <laughs> uh, recently uh, WizKids has gotten the license for some WWE figures mm-hmm. so I, I like kind of try to mix like some C-list superheroes like Shade the Changing Girl along with some uh, WWE personalities and mix and match and just don't take things too serious in the uh, JLI tradition. That's awesome. That's looking like so much fun. Great way to repurpose things too, because you're right. So I mean, wrestling and superheroes have so much in common. Oh yeah, bad tights if nothing else, right? <laughs> Well, thank you again for being on the episode and for sharing your love for Booster Gold. Uh, it's a real pleasure. I'm a big fan of the network. The uh, meeting, the gold standard, it was more of a rhetorical question because we already knew how this was going to turn out. <laughs> you guys do a great job. You bring to the forefront a lot of things that have been left in the past, I think, that people forget how much they love. Not only you with your podcast, but like Rob with MASH and a lot of the other podcasts that they do, everything from Star Trek, the original series, to uh, just cheers the beloved, beloved Justice League cartoon and Justice League Unlimited. Mm-hmm. So many good things that you guys are keeping the memories alive of. And I'm looking forward to your JSA podcast. I'm a big fan of the original superhero team. And I, th- I think that's just going to be another gem in your guys' crown. Well, that's very, very kind of you to say. But what I really heard was you're a bunch of old men who are holding on to childish things. So that works about right. So thanks. I to- don't think those words came from my mouth. But, uh, <laughs> you know, you need to see somebody about possibly about this uh, misperception of things. Sir. <laughs> don't be so hard on yourself. <laughs> well, you'll have to come back again sometime, Trent, and straighten me out. I don't know if I can meet that challenge, but I would love to come back. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, Frank. Oh, Frank. Frank, Frank, Frank. We've been buddies now for far too long, and I really appreciate you coming and being on the show and uh, coming here to talk about Power of the Atom, because I know it was near and dear to both our hearts. So, Frank, why don't you tell the listeners at home where they can find more of you on the internet if they just hate themselves? Well, there's the Revived Power of the Atom podcast. Uh, If you're a DC fan, you probably won't want to check out my very occasional Martian Manhunter podcast or my somewhat more active Wonder Woman podcast. Uh, one initiative I am taking, though, is I'm covering the uh, Dark Horse Comics Aliens series, uh, roughly chronologically. So I, I'm trying not to be as big of a jerk on that as I usually am, if that's a selling point for you. <laughs> awesome. And where can they find all of these podcasts? On the Rollspine Podcasting Network. 
Awesome. Well, thank you again, Frank. Uh, it's been far too long since we chatted, and I appreciate you coming back to the embassy to be on the show again. Well, hey, listen, it was awesome to be here, and also the Texas Embassy Teleport 2 was connected to ERCOT, so I really didn't have a choice to hang around for the end. <laughs> Perfect. Well, folks, that is going to do it. Come back next episode when we take another side trip. With the introduction of the conglomerate superhero team on the horizon, now seems like a great time to look back at the origins of a couple of these members, specifically Gypsy and Vibe. That's right, I'll be looking at the Justice League Detroit era, and I'll have a very special guest host to help me tackle this topic. Who will it be? Come on, people, you know how this works. You're just going to have to wait and find out next episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time, I'm Shag. And I'm Keith. And I'm Trent. And I'm Diablo Frank. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make something of it? it?